This is a very homegrown podcast called Beer Cake. And right now, I am welcoming everyone and my special guest, Hilary Lipka. Hi, how are you? Ah, fine, thanks. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> that that was my intro. <laughs> I just did. Um, yeah, let's see. Let's see uh, how it ends up in, you know, I'll have to when I listen to it. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I, I feel a little rambly today for some reason. Friday. Uh, is it? Yeah, maybe it was a long week. Yeah. How was your week? You know, I'm getting burnt out and yeah. I'm starting to get spring fever. So um, I'm not working as hard as I should. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but don't let your students hear that. Oh, no, I'm on top of everything with my students. The thing I'm letting go of is some of the research that I should be doing. Oh, the research. So, yeah, so you're doing a lot of things. So let's let's actually start uh, with a brief intro of who you are and what you do. <laughs> so, Hillary, you're a an adjunct professor, mm-hmm. an adjunct professor at University of New Mexico. Technically an adjunct instructor because a professor is like a title rank thing. Oh, okay. Um, and actually they call me a temporary part-time instructor. Oh, how nice. How, how nice. I mean, that's I such know. a motivating I've title. I've been there over a decade too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a temporary part-time instructor with semester to semester contracts for over a decade. Okay. Nice. <laughs> Which is why I'm really involved in the union because yeah. Ah, okay. Um, there is a union. Yeah, we just started a union, so we're working on our first contract. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and that includes adjuncts and... and yeah, we've got two units, one for full-time and one for part-time, and part-time includes the adjuncts, yeah. Okay, well, that that's good. Yeah. Well, I, you know, is it is it in academia where they kind of like... Um, create all those tiers, you know, make all those distinctions? Is it, isn't it an academic, academia kind of thing? It is completely an academia kind of thing, um, which is why it gets really interesting having a union where you have full professors and associate professors and assistant professors, which are all like the ranking happy ones. And then you have the instructors who are in year to year contracts. And then, you know, the lowest of the low, which are people like me, uh, all in one union. It's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. So are the, um, I mean, how are the interests uh, among those different groups aligning? Are are there enough common ground? You know what? The funny thing is the emphasis since the beginning has been on the people who are the worst treated by the university. Like you. So there's a lot of push for adjunct rights and regular instructor rights. Wow. And some of our most vocal advocates have been like professors. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Is that what what is that? Is that altruism? Or is it? um, Yeah, yeah. I I really think the the whole mentality of the union is that we all benefit when we fight for one another. So I think because of that, um, people who are drawn to unions are drawn to this idea that we're stronger together, we all have to fight for each other's rights, we're all equal. There's this huge sense of equality in the union. So even though I'm a temporary part-time instructor, I am treated as equal as anybody else in the union. Um, And and that sense of camaraderie and um, mutual fight for mutual gain um, makes it 
a really nice kind of egalitarian place to be. That's really nice. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and you think like, that's kind of what we want in our society, in our, you know, in society in general, you know, that we all treat each other as equals and, exactly. um, yeah. And, um, you know, equal treatment, equal, um, opportunity, um, yeah. And, and, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Respect and dignity for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's the goal. What a, what a novel idea. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. That, that's why I got so involved because it, it was a novel idea to me. Is that unusual for a university or is it unique for UV, uh, uh, you, New Mexico? It's UNM. union. It, it's very normal in unions. Uh, very normal in unions in general. To have this idea that people fight for one another and you lift up the people who are treated the worst. UNM uh, is, is a typical college administration where, you know, they don't treat us very well. Yeah. Um, normal. I, I, is that true though? Because I guess, well, I've never been in a union. Um, and my only experience with a union was, this is like maybe 20 years ago or something when I was, um, <clears throat> I was looking for, um, looking for job opportunities and I got really close. Actually, I did get an offer from Reuters. I applied for a position there. Um, they had an interesting program and they are union. And this is part, partly why sort of the uh, entry level positions were structured that way. So you come in and you sort of, you know, uh, everyone starts off at the same level, um, well, at that level anyway. And then you kind of, you know, you work sort of doing a hodgepodge of, you know, a lot of different things for about two years. And then you get to choose like your spe specialization area. Like you could go the, um, I don't know, there are different tracks, different career paths, tracks. And, you know, so you could go on those. And I, that appealed to me a lot. And so um, I... Um, I applied, I interviewed, and uh, I got I got through all the rounds, um, and uh, they offered me the spot, but uh, just before they offered me the spot, my final interview was with uh, sort of the supervisor of that whole division or area, and um, one of the things that he explained was, or maybe it was the HR person, anyway, uh, one of the things they explained was um, that because it's union, everybody gets was a 2% or 3% raise every six months. And um, regardless, you know, you just get it. It's automatic. And um, I actually personally took very offense to that. <laughs> Seriously? I did. Because, wait a minute. What if I do a crappy job? I still get a raise. But what if I do really well? I still only get a two or three percent raise. That seemed to me unfair. <laughs> I see where you're coming from. I I just could not, uh, you know, 
accept that on on a matter of principle. So, uh, so I actually I was I was really I kind of liked the way they structure their departments, and I thought it would be a good sort of you know. Uh, career opportunity for me so I was very interested but at the same time that whole non-meritocracy just did not sit well with me so I was really hard-pressed to like should I really take it or should I not take it and but uh, luckily what happened was my uh, exist the current position I was in they found out I was interviewing and um, and they counter offered, gave me a huge bump. <laughs> there you go. And and promised to do X Y Z for me. So I was like, okay, <laughs> that just kind of took the, you know, the need for decision making off my off my hands. <laughs> that worked for you, yeah. Yeah, at the time, and I still think so. That was my only experience with a union. But I also have heard like um, like horror stories, you know, uh, of unions, people within unions and people from, uh, you know, who are not uh, in unions, but working with union people, how sometimes it can be difficult and all that stuff. Yeah, I've heard horror stories, too, especially about, funny enough, the AFT, which we're working with very closely. So, but, but you know what, in the end, I think that the downsides of unionization um, are far outweighed by the upsides. So I accept that, you know, you have the so-called rubber room teachers that, you know, they're on payroll forever because you can't fire them and they just kind of Mm -hmm. have them all sit throughout the day every day and they get paid fine. I still think it's worth it to have basic rights. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For the majority who, who deserve basic rights, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's it's also exciting news about the Amazon workers uh, unionizing and all yes, that. Yes, Yeah, and uh, how on from the corporate side, how they've been harassing and bullying them to, like, <laughs> yeah, you've heard, you've heard, right? Yeah, yes. they yes. had all kinds of intimidation tactics to like keep them from organizing. Um, I haven't really kept up. I mean, are, I think they they've they formalized, I think, the union now, right? I haven't kept up either, which I should, but... Yeah, I think they have. Uh, well, you know, we could look it up really quickly, but I don't know. Are we going to? Nah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Move on. But um, anyway, exciting for you. So how far along are the union negotiations? Um... I mean, there's certain argument um, articles that we've agreed on. We're um, negotiating a whole bunch. We're hoping to have maybe our first agreement by May. Mm. End of May. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so is it about um, contracts or is it about uh, pay or, you know, Everything. what are some of the issues? That's the thing. The collective bargaining agreement has so many different components. So it's pay. It's about um, job security. It's about um different types of benefits, Mm. uh, career advancement opportunities, uh, fringe benefits, safety, um, non-discrimination, sex discrimination, (laughs) racial equity. I mean, there's so many things that go into it. Wait a minute, but um, aren't aren't there just uh, regular labor laws that uh, that protect you against some of those things? 
But the thing is, if you want to have better conditions, say for faculty of color, then say the law might provide um, something beyond benign neglect, where when incidents happen, you just kind of don't do much about it. <laughs> um, what, so wait, what is benign, benign neglect? Benign neglect, when you basically yeah. just let things go. So for example, we had an incident last year, I guess it was last year, where um, some of the African-American faculty members were sent threats, um, nasty threats. And the university chose to really not do much about it. Threats from students, from other we faculty? We don't know. Um, the way that the threats came were um, through these suggestions. People were allowed to do anonymous suggestions to the university. Uh. So there were anonymous threats. And um, yeah, so things like that, the university is like, eh. Um, with a union, you can actually say, well, you know, maybe there should be some teeth in the university's policies about what happens when these threats come on. You know, that you should try harder to track down the people who made the threats and punish them. Ah, uh, so that's, it's kind of like social media before there was social media. <laughs> The, the good old fashioned, that's the old fashioned Twitter. It's a suggestion box. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, it was an electronic suggestion box. Oh, yeah. People okay. were allowed to send things in anonymously, which, come on, there's an electric signature usually. There should be yeah. to somebody. It's very difficult to be completely anonymous unless you're like a hacker or something, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's probably a, a way to track things down. I mean, especially if you're using um university accounts like university email account or whatever yeah yeah but anyway uh yeah a lot of energy into that one i see okay so stuff like that um yeah i mean i suppose like they could go to the local authorities and and report uh yes they did a threat being yeah they did and apd also is not awesome Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, but that, that's true in general, I think, you know, like, um, you know, verbal threats and things like that. It, it is, you know, in real life, it is difficult to kind of like, you know, hunt people down, track people down and, and actually do something about it, you know. Um, I mean, you could also claim like, you know, oh, that's my account, but I'm not the one who sent it. Somebody else must have hacked it and sent it, you know, like, exactly. You know, yeah, there's so much room for like, reasonable doubt there. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, we're kind of like going down the rabbit hole. Okay, I so know. Yeah, I okay. know. <laughs> so yes, and this all started with your title. You yes. are a not an adjunct. What did you call it? They call it a temporary part-time instructor. Temporary and part-time. Part -time. You've been there for 10 years and you're still temporary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the part-time is, you know. Yeah. I am part-time, but the temporary gets a little annoying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. I could imagine. So temporary part-time instructor, not even a professor. <laughs> no, I mean, the students call me professor because they don't know the difference. But professor, it's a term. It's a technical yeah. term. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I think I always thought like if you taught at a university level, that's what you're called, you know, professor. Yeah. But but I mean, I, I could I could also understand from the administration perspective, like if that is a specific title as opposed to a description, 
exactly um, and it's yeah. a title yeah then then I, I guess it kind of makes sense to make that distinction but like you know whatever who cares I, I, who, yeah uh, so Professor Lipka <laughs> and, and uh, you teach what uh, I teach in religious studies, and now I'm actually teaching also with the um, Women, Gender, and Sexuality program, cross-listing, so that's exciting. Uh, oh. Yeah, so... Wait, women, gender, and what? Sexuality. Sexuality. That's... Uh, so, those topics not in the context of religion? Yeah, different department. It used to be women's studies, and then they decided to kind of expand what they're called. Um, so I, I cross list. So like I'm mostly my home department's religious studies, but I'm also cross listing with, you know, the other department because the interests overlap. I see. Okay. So you're teaching yeah. what you're teaching, but you're cross listing. So, um, okay. But, but you're the subject matter that you teach is still in the context of religion. Yeah. Okay. But because they have to do with women and sexuality, you can cross list into that department. Got it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah, so let's kind of like talk about like how you got into this whole thing, because, well, one of the things I know you and I had previous conversations about this <clears throat> when, um, when we met up, was it 2019 now? Was it 2019? Yes. yes. 2019, the year before the pandemic, uh, you were visiting New York uh and uh we met up and you know we were and that i think that's when i found out what you were actually doing and teaching and um uh, and i found i personally found it fascinating because you teach religion uh and you love actually the subject the biblical subjects but you're an atheist yeah yeah i, I don't know why i found i found that very fascinating a lot of people find it kind of contradictory that somebody can really love the bible so much that they get a phd in it and devote a large amount of their time to studying the bible writing about the bible teaching about the bible and be atheists but um we're there i'm not the only one yeah yeah so is it is it is it a large cohort or don't know about large but um recognizably i mean th there's enough people i know that i feel like you know there's i don't feel alone in any sense yeah i mean i i can see like people who uh teach religious studies in general you know uh you know you could you if you're just gener genuinely interested in that topic you could teach it without necessarily subscribing to any particular religious tenets yeah um but but i think it's the way you sort of characterized uh your affinity toward the subject because <laughs> this the way you describe it is i love the bible yeah. <laughs> and i've only heard that from religious people <laughs> but i mean if you're gonna get a phd in something you better love it that's true so tell me about how you fell in love with it was it always there the love no, I, I mean, the thing is, I was raised completely not religious. We didn't have a Bible in my house. I never, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I never looked at the Bible. And then freshman year in college, I, I came in wanting to do medieval studies. So I thought, oh, I should know something about religion and probably something about the Bible. So I took a course introduction to the Old Testament. 
And that's when I just kind of fell in love. Um, And it was a combination of, first of all, what they call the historical critical method, which is when scholars basically look at biblical texts, and this is especially true with the Old Testament, and try to figure out who wrote the text, uh, why they wrote it, who their intended audience was, what their circumstances were, maybe when they wrote it. And it blew me away that you could take this one huge collection of texts and do that with so many of these different texts and then try to figure out what was going on there. Uh, It just kind of blew me away. And the other thing I loved was um, that most evidence that we have about the civilization of ancient Israel is the Bible. It's mostly the Bible. So how do you try to figure out what we can about this entire civilization based on one big book that's a collection of texts with that's you know cool. now there's archaeology too but a lot of it's Bible. yeah um but i mean i think um you know learning about the author of any particular text why you know the historical context why they wrote it who their audience is and all that that's not unique to the bible that's you, you know that's just any kind of text that's written but know. usually you know who the author of the text is Ah, okay. I see. I see. I see. <laughs> the thing about the Bible is we don't know who any of the authors are. They don't tell us. I see. Okay. So it's this whole shroud, like there's these ancient texts, that whole civilization is, ba- you know, based on is just shrouded in mystery. That's the thing. And they created these texts. And then you have the question of how much do these biblical texts actually represent the culture of ancient Israel in any given period? And different subcultures, and that's an, a whole other mystery. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing with um, I think the Jewish culture is it's a culture, it's a religion, it's a heritage, yeah. it's uh, lineage, it's everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So even if you don't subscribe to Judaism, the religion, you're still Jewish if you're right. yeah heretically uh, headed. He- Hereditary, hereditarily. It's hereditary, whatever. and yeah. so much of Judaism is a sense of history, shared mm. history, shared culture, shared cultural legacy that you can't help but feel something when you're reading the Bible. Yeah, yeah. You know, these are supposed to be your forefathers. Yeah. Forefathers, foremothers, ancestresses. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think foremothers is a thing. Yeah. Foremothers, then. Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure, but yeah, it sounds right. Um, uh, do you think that uh, Jews in general feel that way? I think a lot do. Even even secular Jews often will celebrate certain holidays. Mm-hmm. And and you think about the, the holidays that are most popular to celebrate, like Passover, right? Mm-hmm. Um that's about the exodus. Mm-hmm. You know, that's celebrating something that happened, you know, over 2000 years ago, that's considered part of shared history. Uh, more than 2000 years ago. Yeah, over 2000. Like. Yeah. yeah. I'm just yeah. gonna go with over 2000. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we're not gonna get into the actual historicity of the exodus, not going there. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's a shared legacy, the sense of shared history that um, the holidays have as part of them. And, and all the holidays, you're reading stuff in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, actually, all of the Jewish holidays are um, historical events that you're commemorating. Yeah, um, um, Hanukkah, though. Oh, Hanukkah, definitely, yeah. That's... Um, Maccabees Rebellion. Okay. Against the Seleucids. Yeah. That, that's in... Which book in the Bible? Um, it's actually in the Apocrypha, so it's not in the Old Testament. Okay, got it. Okay, no, that's that's why, like, I I don't really have a reference to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Maccabees is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love Hanukkah, man. Um, it's just it's awesome. And again, it was a it's celebrating a rebellion. <laughs> you know, the Seleucids were horrible, and Tychus Epiphanes was awful. I mean, putting a, a statue of Zeus in the temple and trying to make people worship it. Oh Dude. yeah, no, that's that's yeah. You gotta celebrate taking that down, you know, <laughs> and just be like, no, get out. <laughs> Reestablishing an independent Judea, cleansing the temple, and and just getting things back to where you could actually worship your God in peace. I mean, you gotta celebrate that. Yeah, there, there's that's religious freedom. Right. So that there, there's one thing to have religious tolerance. That's a little too much tolerance. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, I love like, Hanukkah. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but here's the thing. Uh, you did not grow up religious. At all. At all. So both of your parents were Jewish mm-hmm. by hereditary. I don't know why I can't say that word today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's matrilineal according to traditional Judaism. And yeah as far back as I can trace both sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so neither of your parents were religious either. No. Yeah. Neither of them were religious. So you were brought up entirely secular. So what was there? Um, did you do anything at all? Like, did you actually celebrate Hanukkah and things like um, that? Not at home, but because I grew up in Riverdale where there's a large Jewish community, my mom sent me to both summer camp and after school programs at the Y. Oh, yeah. Which was for us, the Young Men, Young Women's Hebrew Association. Yes, yes. The Y-W- they celebrated Jewish holidays. YMHA and YWHA. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which nobody here has heard of, of course. But yeah. Um, <laughs> so they did the Jewish holidays. So I kind of learned about the Jewish holidays from that. In my summer camp, we did Shabbat every Friday. And then one summer, my mother decided to send me to um, a, a conservative but hardcore conservative summer camp, sleepaway camp, huh. where we did prayers before every meal and we did services, Shabbat services, both Friday and Saturday. And it was kosher and I learned a lot. Oh, that's pretty cool. So that's, that, that's for, that was for an entire summer. Four weeks. That's uh, it. Oh, okay. Just four, I, four I insisted on only doing a month. Yeah. Okay. Um, so were, were other campers, were they more religious people? Yeah. Okay. I think I was the only one who had never heard the prayers ever. <laughs> so you were the only one who had no idea what was going on. <laughs> I, I, they're suddenly saying the Hamotzi and I'm like, what? <laughs> so by the end of the camp, I, I knew basic prayers, some of them. <laughs> no, no. Were you, were you giggling the entire time? Because... No. No? Or, or no, you just like wide-eyed? Yes. <laughs> It's like they're really serious about it. So you kind of get like, mm. you know, the tone. 
and you, you know, I was what, 13. So I just kind of went along with it. And okay. I mean, if everybody's going to say this, I'm going to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Once I figured out what they were saying more or less. So, so were you converted then? Oh no, no. Oh no. Still very much non-religious, but well, you know, I said, if they're all going to say these Hebrew words before they eat. I'm going to try to figure out the Hebrew words and say them too. Yeah. I had no idea what I was saying. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like they translated it. It was just expected that you knew what it was. Did you did you come home and ask your mother, like, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> I think she was so frazzled. You know, she was single momming it and she was working super long hours that whatever the first thing was she heard about, she did. I see. <laughs> Oh, you'll take my daughter for a month? Excellent. <laughs> I refuse to do two months. I think if I was willing to do two months, it would have been two. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I, it, it didn't make me more religious at all. No. But, but that's, it, it's an interesting exposure though. In, and also yeah. like at that age when you're, when you're so impressionable and, and, you know, and, and you're basically a sponge at that age. You're just absorbing everything and, you know, Yeah. Yeah. So, um, other than other than being totally like uh, lost and and all that, uh, what were your impressions? I mean, I didn't connect to the Jewish part. Mm. I liked the camp. I mean, it was nice. It was um, in the woods. I can pick blueberries. They had all these wild blueberries. There was a lake, and I could go canoeing on the lake. And I learned how to do, like work a sailboat. I went jet skiing. I mean, it was really cool. Um, but no, it didn't. I didn't feel much connection to the Jewish. Okay. Body. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Nah. But okay. So um, it wasn't until college that you were doing medieval studies and you decided, oh, okay, maybe I should learn about the religions. Um, at the Fall time. of freshman year, I did intro to the Old Testament. Fall of freshman year? Yeah. That's your first semester. Exactly. Oh. And that at that point, I liked it so much that I decided the next year to start with Hebrew Hebrew. That's funny, because I didn't, I don't think, well, you either you, you never mentioned it, or maybe I didn't care at that time. Um... <laughs> Because, you know, first, first year freshman year, it wasn't until second year, the year I took off. Um, so after my first, uh, after my freshman year, I took a year off. And it was during the year off, that's when I, um, how should I put it? Well, you could say it in different ways. Found God, eyes opened, uh, born again converted whatever well it, the the term converted is weird though because i'm not sure if it exactly applies to me because i grew up in a religious family i grew up in a you know uh with religious parents and i went to church i went to sunday school since i was you know in grammar school whatever um yeah so i grew up in that environment but you know at some point i think um in your in your spiritual development um you know um whether you're as a kid or adolescent or an adult at some point you decide for yourself that uh yeah this is this is for me you know 
So like you're not blindly just going to church because your parents are bringing you or, you know, or whatever. But at some point you kind of make a conscious decision that you actually believe in God and you're going to follow uh, that path. Um, so for me, that came when I, during that year, 1988. Yeah. I was 20. Yeah. But for me, that was a religious experience. Um, yeah. But for you, it was just... <laughs> I love I this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And so prior to that, sorry, that was a just wrong, a long ramble to my, the point I was going to make is prior to that, uh, I didn't really care too much about it. And so, so maybe that's why you and I never talked about it back then. But, but I think had I been more interested, um, yeah, because I don't remember you mentioning it all. Yeah. 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 There were so many other things going on. I guess so. You know, my, my decision to change my major from medieval studies to what ended up being classics, where I did Hebrew Bible and Latin as my two languages, well, biblical Hebrew and Latin as my two languages, really, you know, in terms of big things going on in one's life. Yeah. Uh. So you actually majored in those languages? Yeah, I um, I chose a classics major in the end, and usually you do Greek and Latin, but I chose to do Biblical Hebrew and Latin. Yeah. And I oh, did okay. Biblical Hebrew in college. Why Why didn't you do Biblical Hebrew and Greek? I fell in love with ancient Rome too. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but I should have done Greek because I was terrible at Latin. I was so bad at Latin, and and when I did Greek in grad school, I realized actually I'm much better at Greek than Latin. Yeah. Well, no, I only mention Greek because that that's the language of the New Testament. I know. I don't yeah. know why I gravitated to Latin. Yeah, I don't, it, it's fine. It's a dead language. So, of course, it's appealing. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think from very early on, I was Old Testament oriented. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't actually take a New Testament class until I audited one grad school, my fourth year of grad school. Fifth year? Fourth or fifth year. <laughs> So it seems to me then your affinity to the Bible is really more uh, uh, very connected to the whole um, Jewish experience, the Jewish history yes. uh, and the Jewish culture. So it's really, yeah, okay. So it's really, um, is it fair to say uh, that it's really more about the overall Jewish uh, culture and history than it is about the Bible itself or no I think it's both okay I mean I'm really fascinated by um biblical Israel within the larger cultural milieu of the ancient Near East you know so in that sense it's completely historical within an ancient Near Eastern context and not so much a Jewish context mm -hmm. um but I love the Jewish context too so it's really both are there historical texts uh, that predate the Bible? Oh, yes. Um, Many. No, historical texts about the Jewish culture. Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry, okay. sorry. Uh, no. Um, in terms of, like, ancient Israelite texts, um, nah, nothing that's been found. Well, I, I guess so, because, like, if you think about it, the Jewish culture doesn't start until Abraham. So anything that's prior to that is not necessarily Jewish. 
but even if you want to talk about like what we found archaeologically that has writing in ancient Israel, uh-huh. we don't have anything going back um, before, I don't know what, the 10th century BC, maybe the 9th century BCE. So, you know, I mean, we can corroborate some stuff with like yeah. the archaeological finds, but in terms of real writings um, from ancient Israel, it just doesn't go back that far. Wait, the statement I just made about Abraham, uh, is that actually true? Is that actually accurate? I don't know if I... Okay. Um, there's a lot about... Uh, there's some debate about when Judaism as a religion began. Right. Um, I would say, and this other people would disagree with, but I would say it started coming together with the Babylonian exile and really started to be a thing in the second temple period. So that's way after Moses. I, I, was, yeah. even think, I was even thinking maybe Moses is- No, that's that's what I would call the religion of ancient Israel. Okay. Which okay. is pretty different from Judaism. I see. That's why I, I like to distinguish the two because there's a lot of things they believed that was not believed, um, you know, by the fifth century BCE. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause, um, actually, cause the nation of Israel doesn't start until Jacob. Right. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right. Jacob. Cause Depending Jacob on is, what you consider the nation of Israel to be. Well, that that's true, but yeah. okay. I, I'm, I'm actually only going by the biblical accounts. <laughs> so by biblical accounts, cause Jacob is renamed Israel. And, and in so, theory, all Jews descend from one of his 12 sons. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So that's when tech, I guess, technically, I don't know, the nation of Israel kind of starts. Um, prior to that, it's just one guy, you know, Abraham. Uh, it's not even his entire clan. It's just him, you know, uh, him uh, up rooting his roots and going off to Canaan. Um, and, um, and then, you know, his son, but okay. So Jacob, but then even then it's really not a nation. It's really it's more people. of a clan. Yeah. It's a clan. I think clan is exactly the word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not until they actually come, it's after Exodus and they come out of Egypt and come back to the land of Canaan and they settle into the different tribes. Um, and that's when they actually become a nation. Um, yeah, and we're still not really clear on what happened there. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's roughly that period where they, they became something resembling a nation. Yeah, but, but I think you're, what you're saying is that is still ancient Israel, it's not Judaism exactly. as we know it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So what is the distinction then? Well, I mean, for one thing, Judaism, as we know it, and maybe even start with the destruction of the Second Temple, 70 CE, because up until 70 CE, they were doing animal sacrifices in the temple. Animal sacrifice was a crucial part of the religion in ancient Judea. And, um, and also in a lot of ancient religions. Exactly. Yeah. And once that temple was destroyed, uh, they had to pivot, so to speak. And all these holy days that had been associated with sacrifices suddenly were associated with other things. So like Yom Kippur, right? Mm -hmm. Yom Kippur 
You read Leviticus 16 and you see what they used to do for Yom Kippur, which refresh my memory. <laughs> okay, basically, um, they sacrifice a couple of animals. One of them is a goat that they sent off to, I think it's called Azazel. They just sent, they put, they all put their hands on it. So all the sins are going on the goat and they kind of sent it off. That's the, that's the scapegoat. Yeah, that's the scapegoat. That, that's one. Yes. And then they also, like, if I can remember correctly, like it's the one time of the year when they go into the Holy of Holies and cleanse it. Yeah, I think so. And I think they cleanse it with animal blood. Yeah. Yeah. They sprinkle um, the entire place. with. And it's only the high priest who goes in. Yeah. Um, with a the- rope tied around his waist. In case uh, he dies. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so it's um, it's really a very different idea of sin, <laughs> and in how you cleanse yourself from sin, than you have in Judaism once you're no longer at the temple. I mean, if you look at Yom Kippur now, you're basically going to temple and um, asking God to forgive your sins, and it's a it's a connection with God, and also you're doing it communally, so it's with the whole community. It's very, very different from what Yom Kippur was in ancient Israel, where you had in later Judea, where you're, you know, putting your hands in a goat and sending it to Azazel. That that sounds, uh, modern Judaism sounds a lot like Christianity, where that's basically what Christians do. Yeah. Um, because... It's not that different. Yeah, well, because, um, well, theologically, if you think about it, uh, Christians don't need to sacrifice because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, therefore... Oh making the need for a continuing sacrifice uh no longer necessary yeah um yeah so so i understood it um you know from the christian's perspective why christian churches would not you know sacrifice animals but i never really understood why in judaism that you guys didn't you know continue doing that because we were forced we were forced because <laughs> they, they destroyed the temple and then they drove everybody everywhere and you had what we call the diaspora and well that's it no more sacrifice fortunately there was torah study you know in the babylonian exile they also didn't have a temple so um sacrifice if it happens was on a much smaller scale and they started like really studying the torah and focusing on the covenant relationship with god and the torah laws so that stuck yeah it became much more important you know in the diaspora with rabbinic judaism you know, what's really interesting, though, the the ancient worship, sacrifice, uh, that whole tradition, um, ritual, is that in, in one sense, it is very graphic, very visceral an experience. And so I think um, it can be very spiritual in that sense, because you actually can witness something dying in your place. And this is the price for sin. And so it, that's it's actually a very powerful, powerful thing. But at the same time, it it died and not me, and and therefore absolving absolving me of whatever responsibility, you know, of having committed that sin, is essentially gone. So in that sense, it seems a very I don't know. I mean, I'm of course there is also that um, element of confession as the sacrifice is being done. So I guess yeah. that element—it's not like you're doing that in lieu of, you know, confessing your sins. Yeah, I don't know. I had a point there, but 
I think I just kind of talk myself out of it. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think in the in the modern sort of rendition of this is is very. Um, very internal, you know. Um, Passover. So, do you guys do Passover only at Passover, or do you do something like that at, at other times too? Oh no, it's only Passover. It's only a Passover, and usually yeah. the first two nights is either Seder, only the first two nights. Yeah, because uh, in the Christian religion we do communion, which is, you know, the ceremonial bread and and wine which is essentially the passover feast that jesus did with his disciples but it kind of changed to uh more of commemorating his death as opposed to uh the egyptian deliverance and exactly. so yeah yeah so that could, so actually depending on the denomination sometimes depending on the church the individual church um you know, Christians do it, do the communion, you know, once or twice a year to every month. And I think, I think Catholics may do it every week. They I'm do. Sure. If you're yeah. hardcore Catholic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. So, okay. So freshman year, uh, you discover the Bible and you're like, where have you been all my life? <laughs> was just so cool man I, it really it blew me away intellectually it blew me away how you can just you know take this this one big book that's and just do all these things with it um so is it is it uh was it more like the aspect of like here's this like you know mystery and things and just kind of like all bundled up in this collection of books and you just want to unwrap you know unwrap it kind yes, of feel and, and unravel it and, yeah. and you read some of the things in the bible that you're surprised were in the bible and you're like why is that there and that's an awesome question why is that there yeah 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 that is true yeah um, and you can spend a lifetime on so many First of all, why did anybody write that? Second of all, did this happen? Third, why did somebody feel the need to preserve that? There's endless fun in that. Yeah. So, so what are um, let's let's talk specifics. Is, okay. Yeah. Can you give me an okay. example? Like, of there's like... one with I think it's Elijah. I get Elijah and Elisha mixed up sometimes, but I think it's Elijah. That one time he was walking, do 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 do, and some little kid said, "Hey, Baldy! Hey, Baldy!" And basically he cursed them. And I think it was 42, was it 42 kids were mauled by the she bears? She bears came and mauled 42 little kids. Something like yeah. that, yeah. And you're like, what? And I remember the first time I read that, it was, um, I was doing a summer class in Jewish Theological Seminary in um, Biblical Narrative. And we just basically read the Bible in Hebrew, like there's huge amounts. And I remember it was the first time I read the story. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. Like, I just thought it was like, what's the story behind that story? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think if it was Elijah or Elisha. Exactly. I feel, I feel like it's Elijah. The, I it's think like it's Elijah, Elijah with a J. 
Yeah, Elijah came so. first, and Elijah was his uh, uh, successor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, between the two, I just feel like Elijah was more of a basket case than Elisha. <laughs> it was a hardcore basket case. Yes. He, he was, was he also the one with Jezebel? Because there's also this weird thing with Jezebel. That I don't I don't remember. I don't Elijah, know. I think it was Elijah with a J who was um, with Jezebel. Where basically she um after they had the whole thing uh with um the temple of Baal, like the priest of Baal versus the Yahwists and um God comes and kills all the priests of Baal. Jezebel basically is like, you're a dead man. And Elijah gets so freaked out that he just flees to the middle of nowhere and basically begs God to kill him. So, wait, Jezebel, I thought Jezebel was like, what was she? I thought for some reason, Ahab's I thought. Wife. She was a Phoenician princess. Right. Okay. Married yeah, King yeah. Ahab of Samaria, the Northern Kingdom. Yeah. And she was really into Baal. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Like she okay. was so into Baal that her husband, to make her happy, said, hey, I'll build you a temple to Baal. So there was a nice temple to Baal in Israel. Yeah, yeah. Meaning um, Northern Kingdom Israel, you know. Yeah. And Elijah got freaked out and he just um, hid in a cave or something. He went as far away as he could because yeah. Jezebel was scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a major crisis of faith. He did. Um, I think also I read somewhere that he probably suffered from depression too, mm-hmm. uh, like major depression. And and yeah, there were, I think, maybe more than one instance in the Bible where it's actually cites like he tells God, like, just take me away. Just kill me already. Why are you making me suffer yes. through all this? And then God says, yes, you have to suffer. That That's the point. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I I think um in comparison Elisha has a much better time, I think. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. A lot less tormented. A lot less tormented as a person. I think Elijah was a tormented person. Yeah. You know. And that's the other thing I find very interesting about biblical characters that how flawed they are, every single one of them. Everyone. Everyone. Oh my god, there's not one that you're not like, dude, really? Yeah. <laughs> every, Even every, Abraham, you're like really? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. It, well, you know what here's funny here's the funny thing. Abraham uh you know, go, the first time he goes to Egypt, he's afraid that they're going to kill him to take his wife. So he says, oh, say you're, my, <laughs> say you're my sister. That way they'll be nice to me so they can get at you. But I do. She ends up in, in Pharaoh's harem. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I know. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, he does not. He does this not only once. He does it twice. <laughs> no. He does it twice. But at least with Abimelech, it, it looks like nothing happened between Abimelech and Sarah. With yeah. Pharaoh, it looks like something they have. Uh, okay. So it's even worse with Pharaoh. Yeah. Um, was that the first time or the second time? No, the, the, the first... first time was Pharaoh, Genesis 12. Yeah. And the second time Abimelech was Genesis 20. Um, yeah, the first time it may have happened, something may have happened because I think he was struck with some sort of disease I or something. Plagues. 
Yeah. Not just him, I think the whole household. Yeah, but, and so yeah. he's like, why am I being punished? What happened? And then he discovers that Sarah was actually Abraham's wife. And so he goes to Abraham and say, why did you lie to me? Now here my household is plagued. <laughs> Take her back. Yeah. yeah. Because the Egyptians knew you don't commit adultery. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were, they understood why this God was angry. But, but actually, um, he didn't lie. He, he is, she, she is, I think she's his half sister. That's what he says in Genesis 20. Yeah. Which. You think he was fudging it? That's fudging it. Yeah. When you say, hey, here's my sister. She's my sister. And then Pharaoh says, hey, I'm going to bring her into my household. She'll be part of my harem. And Abraham says nothing. Oh, oh no, 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 no. That part, yes. He's, oh, he's Abimelech. He doesn't admit it to Abimelech until Abimelech gets a dream from God. And God's saying, yeah. you'd better return this man's wife. And then he confronts him. And Abraham's like, oh, she's my half-sister. Yeah. So technically, I, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. No, absolutely. Yeah. He, the, that was that. That was definitely a misdirection there or you know uh missing whatever um but yeah you're right every single every single character in the bible is is horribly flawed yes which, uh, which i love that's another thing yeah. i love about the bible yeah they i i think what's in you know from a spiritual perspective uh in some way this is uh you know provides um, solace um, that look at these horrible people and yet God loves them. <laughs> exactly. I mean, David. Yeah. God adored David. And David did so many awful things. He did so many awful things, yeah. 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 It, there's, there's a redemptive message there, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the recurring theme, though. We fuck up. God redeems. We fuck up. God redeems. It's if you, and um, I actually I started reading the Bible. Uh, was it late last year? Um, well, the audio version, and just straight through, which I never did. Uh, well, no, but I didn't finish actually because I I got sidetracked. I went as far as, oh, how far did I get? Quite far. I didn't quite finish the Old Testament yet, but I I got through all the major books and um, I went past Nehemiah. Wow. Uh, got really far. Yeah, yeah, I got I got pretty far, and um, but you know when you're when you listen to it like that, right? And so my experiences uh, uh, with the Bible, you know, through my, all my church years is we actually take you know chunks of text and study it so we don't actually read it straight through that's something you do on your own and, and you know a lot of people have done that um and, but you know they also recommend even if you're going to read the entire bible don't read it straight through they actually recommend that you read a few chapters in the old testament a few chapters in the new testament a few chapters in the psalms you know like that mix it up yeah yeah that way you kind of like get a um uh, get a uh, sort of a cohesive perspective as opposed to just reading it straight through like it like it's a novel um but if you read it straight through it's incredibly repetitive and also i think there's huge chunks that for contemporary audiences don't make sense 
Oh, no. Getting into the instructions on how to design the the bloody tabernacle. Yes. (laughs) Oh, man. That goes on a long time. Pieces of gold and jewelry and all that stuff and how it's placed, you know, on the garment and everything. It's so long. And the the sacrifices, some of them in Leviticus, man, it's so long. Yeah. But it's also fascinating, too, at the same time, you know? Yeah. Um, Because it's so detailed. Oh, yeah. It is incredibly detailed. Yeah. And and so you do kind of get a a sense of the history that's embedded in this that it's not just religious instructions but people lived through these eras you know yeah. and um and these are the things that they did um you know and this is how they worshiped and this is how they um you know exercised their faith and you know and all that, which seems incredibly foreign to us in the, you know, in the modern era. But, um, yeah, uh, it's, yeah. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you. Um, right. Okay. So you were, I, I was asking you, like, give an example and you say Elijah cursing the 42 uh, kids, little kids, children who kids. are then mauled by bears because they said, hey, Baldy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so that was the first one where I was like, whoa. Uh, the other one, the first time, a couple of things, but uh, the, another one that actually I'm revisiting again with one of my classes is Judges 19. What is what? Judges 19, the Levite and his, they say concubine off and feel like ish. maybe it's secondary wife, concubine, who knows what it is. Um, that's actually one of the things I'm researching now is what a Pelagish is, uh, where basically he, um, so he, he has this, this, I'm just going to say concubine, I don't know what a Pelagish is. And, um, she leaves him, he goes to get her back at her father's house. And then as they're traveling back, um, they have to spend the night somewhere. So they spend the night in a town that's part of the tribe of Benjamin. And then while they're staying in this, um, old man's house who like offered to take them in, all the men of the town surrounds the house as a mob and demand to know the, the stranger, meaning basically rape him. Yeah. And the the old man goes out and says, no, 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 please don't do that. Don't do this ter- terrible thing. Why don't you take my virgin daughter and this man's pelagish concubine, whatever you want to call it, instead and do to them whatever you want. And they're like, no, 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 that's not acceptable. So um, then the Levite takes his concubine or pelagish, whatever, throws her out to the crowd. She gets brutally gang raped all night long. He goes to sleep, has a really peaceful rest, and then gets up in the morning, sees her there. Like, she somehow made it back to the threshold and she's collapsed and he's like, come on, let's go. And then when she doesn't respond and she doesn't move, he just takes her and puts her, you know, on his donkey. And then when he gets home, he takes her home, cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends it to 12 tribes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, That's an interesting story to explain. Yeah. Cuts her up into 12 pieces, sends each piece to the 12 tribes, and to say basically, this is what you did to her. Yeah, it's, it's a call for war. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The tribe of Benjamin almost gets destroyed by it. Yeah. Because all the other tribes do declare war on them. Yeah. And then they also won't give them their, their daughters to marry. 
So the tribe of Benjamin eventually has to come up with a new solution, which involves kidnapping and raping a bunch of other women. So it's awesome. Yeah. So, so yes. How do you explain that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My students are horrified. They are so horrified because most of them have never read this before. And they're like, why? Yeah. You know, and especially when you compare it to Genesis 19 with Lot and Sodom, where everything's okay because, you know, the angels are there. The angels, like, can take care of things. In Judges 19, you don't have the angels. No, you don't have the angels. Um, so everything goes horribly wrong. Yes. I'm trying to think. Um, I don't really recall studying that particular story. Um, maybe, although it does ring a bell, there might have been a sermon on it at some point. It's um, a hard one to, to deal with. Yeah, and and that's the thing, too. In the Bible, it's it's full of really, really hard and harsh things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the harshest stories. Yeah. Actually, I remember now, like, when I was listening, yeah, when it came to that, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, like, Jephthah and the daughter, when he promises yeah. God that if God helps him win battle, he'll sacrifice the first thing that greets him when he gets home. And, oh, it's his daughter. Yeah. That, and he sacrifices his daughter to God. Yeah. Um, that That's a stupid thing that he did. Um, yes. Which is part of the point. But, oh, man, it's so not cool. Yeah. I think God rebukes him for that. Like, eh. No, I think he does. Like, I'm not so sure. It's yeah. going to be like Judges, what, 13 or something? I can check. I mean, I know God lets him go through with the sacrifice. I remember that. I'm not quite sure what happens after. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there are a lot of really hard things. So you're, you know, like, uh, well, you're you're not religious, uh, so it doesn't, I guess, really apply to you. But you know, somebody, a non-believer, would say to a believer, let's say either in Judaism or Christianity, and say, okay. This is the hor these are the horrible things that God lets happen. How can you believe in a God like that? And that's a really hard question to answer. Actually. But you can just look at the world today and say the same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely I mean, that's true. an eternal question. That is an eternal question, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And it is it is it is a hard thing to wrestle with, um, yeah. but but that's not your context. Sorry. <laughs> no, but in Judaism, it's something that comes up a lot. Ever since the Holocaust, there's always been you know this kind of like, how do we reconcile our conception of God with the Holocaust? It's always been like a thing. That's why you have Holocaust theology as like a subfield now. So, uh, what are some things that are said about that? Um, one is that, um, there's human will and human free will. God gave humans free will. And sometimes God just has to step aside 
Um, there was this feeling that God was so upset about what happened that God actually turned away and couldn't watch. Uh, then you have the God is dead idea, which is mm -hmm. basically that the God of the Old Testament, the God that Jews were worshiping, really cannot be reconciled with a God that would let that happen. So maybe God, you know, took off. Um, th there's a lot of other ideas in Holocaust theology. I have to say, I know very little about it. Mm. Um, that's probably about the extent of what I know. But um, I mean, it's like Christianity, you know, if you genuinely believe that God loves us and God is there for us, then it isn't a problem. It isn't, um, but no. it's still, it isn't, but um, it wasn't a question actually. Uh, it, it isn't. But at the same time, there are things that it's just hard to swallow. And, and one thing I will say is that um, we do look at thing, these things. So here's an analogy. Um, in, the, in the way that we look at historical uh, events and historical facts from the lens, a modern lens, and we say how horrible those people were, right? Uh, or how horrible those things were um, and and that's not necessarily the right perspective to have um, because you do really need to look at things that happened in history in a historical context and and there are you know and you can still make um, an objective judgment as to like um, you know, whether that was good, bad, or, you know, whatever, morally or ethically or otherwise. Um, and in the same way that we look at God from our own perspective, and it's, and that's really hard. So in doing so, we, you know, essentially make God into our image as opposed to the other way, right? Um, and the concept of love, we, we know it from our own experience, what love is or what we think love is, but do we really know what real love is, you know? Um, and that, yeah. And I think to say, Christianity does much more with that than Judaism. The yeah. whole idea of agape yeah. and what love really is, um, it, it's much more developed. How does uh, Judaism deal with that? Not much from what I know. <laughs> I mean, when I first learned about agape, I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. Um, I, Judaism, it's just different, man. It's, I mean, I guess there's this idea that God loves us, but it, it's just, it's not the, the whole love and do what you will idea. Uh -huh. um, and the whole I, I, idea of, I mean, it just, the love, I think, plays a much bigger role in Christianity. So, okay. Yeah. I, so I, mean, I see it. Maybe, I'm, I mean, again, I'm not a religious Jew. I'm probably missing something. I don't know. Um, uh, but, you know, the concept of love is definitely a central theme. Um, it, it is the central concept yeah. that holds everything together, despite all the you know rebellion and massacres and <laughs> raping and and everything 
that happens still love is at the center that holds it all together um in fact i mean one one way you could even describe the entire bible is a love letter from god to us um but anyway yeah so you're saying in judaism it doesn't really play that it doesn't play such a central part or i mean and again i may be missing something but it seems a lot of judaism is i mean you make yourself right with god by following all the commandments okay and living in accordance with god's design for the world um it's really very different yeah um also i i recently learned maybe a couple of years ago that um that judaism the concept of heaven actually does not exist um you know it's there's a vague idea but it's not really i think because of christianity maybe also islam influence so there's like a vague vague idea but yeah um in ancient israel they just said sha'ol which was the underworld and everybody went there (laughs) that was it you know it was like hades it was the same exact thing as hades you know um didn't matter good bad whatever you went down there and you hung out as a shade Oh really? Oh yeah. So it so it doesn't really matter. Then see, then that doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't matter what you did when you were alive if we all end up in the same place. Yeah, that's how it was. So why <laughs> why would you necessarily follow one god or another? I mean, maybe in Sheol, you know. I mean, there are some hints that in Sheol maybe the evil would be punished. But everybody's still in Sheol. Yeah. <laughs> We're all hanging there. Yeah. Um, Again, I think it's like Hades. I, this high, you can have reward and punishment to an extent, but you're all in the same place. Yeah. So, um, so you fall in love with this text, yeah. and and just unraveling. Uh, so do you see this as kind of like a life pursuit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, t- totally. And then when I started studying biblical Hebrew, um, it was so easy for me. Semitic languages in general, like they just make sense to me the way that they're structured as opposed to, say, Latin or German, uh, two languages I could not handle. Um, like it just worked for me. Like I understood the syntax. I understood the grammar. Um, it, so that also helped a great deal that, you know, my brain kind of worked well with Semitic languages. So I thoroughly enjoyed learning Hebrew and, you know, all the other languages too, because they're awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the thing about language though, uh, because it, it, it's, um, it shows so much about how, um, people think within a culture. Exactly. Um, what they value, what they, uh, you know, like just the thought process, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So, so explain a little bit about the Semitic language, you know? Um, so basically it's just, um, it's a completely different structure from, um, so Semitic languages, like you have, um, well, okay. Take biblical Hebrew. So you have, it's so hard to explain, but the verbal system is, oh, I don't even know how to explain, um, in your name, um, 
like like you have the simple form and then you have a passive form and then you have like a an iterative form and a kind of intensive um and then when you make something happen or make somebody do something and then when something is done to you those are all different verbal like forms it, it's so it, it's it's relational yes yes so it's very different in terms of tense basically all they have is like pretty much past present future sort of but it doesn't quite work like that um yeah so are you saying that uh, like a, a a verb word uh, a word that's a verb the different conjugations if you will it, it conjugates to all those different relational differences yeah you can kind of use the word conjugate yeah yeah or different iterations or yeah but not every verb has all the different iterations. Right, right. So that's where it gets really interesting. Like sometimes you'll have a stem and it'll mean one thing in some iterations and it'll have another meaning that's like kind of homonym, but it only appears in others. Huh. So it, it gets really interesting. Yeah. Um, but you have the same thing in Acadian. I mean, Acadian really is similar. But, um, but the idea that um, the verbs, the different iterations or conjugations of the verb, same word, same root, uh, but depending on how it relates to the subject and the object yes. and, you know, in the environment is how they're all, you know, all the, all those different nuances are expressed in the different forms of the same word. Exactly. Uh, that, that itself is, is quite interesting because then you could you could say like this is how people saw the world is through these you know different iterations of relationships yeah yeah as opposed to some other language where you have present past tense and future tense and that's it and then the way you uh show action and relationship is by adding on other words yeah yeah which is essentially English. <laughs> That's the thing. Hebrew is very compact. Yes. Yes. Um, and then you have some languages where uh, it is absent all those things and it is entirely in the context of how it's... Uh, in the context of everything. <laughs> when it was said who says it who's who they say it to <laughs> that's the thing and it, it it is really interesting how much they got yeah. yeah oh yeah that's uh wow yeah that's that's quite interesting um so you liked it so much you decide okay that an undergrad you change your major to yeah. classical and you study hebrew and then you go on to graduate school to study some more. So Yeah, and I discovered um, we had a, a guest instructor my junior year in college. And, and he uh, knew a lot about the ancient Near East. So he taught this. So I remember it was a seminar in creation. And he had us reading ancient Near Eastern texts. And I hadn't been aware of ancient Near Eastern texts until then. And I fell in love with those too. So when I went to grad school, I looked for a program where we had a heavy emphasis on Old Testament and then ancient Greece. Uh -huh. So it really kind of dictated the direction I went in grad school. 
ancient engineer east is in today's geography basically okay i i was very into mesopotamia so it was like israel and then like her immediate neighbors like moab and amon and ugarit and all that um well ugarit was older um but canaan what the canaanite cultures and yeah. then the larger ancient Near East, so you're going to have like Assyria, Babylonia, um, if you want to go back further in time, Sumer. Yeah. So, um, so ancient Near East, did you say ancient Near East languages? Or Yeah. Yeah, okay. we did. Um, uh, my program was pretty hardcore on those. I mean, I didn't do Sumerian, but, you know, Akkadian, um, Hittite. And then uh, the, the languages of the neighbors that are similar to Hebrew, right? So you have like Aramaic and Ugaritic and um, Moabite, Ammonite, all that's crazy. Cause it's, it's a lot like Hebrew. Okay. Cause Aramaic still exists, um, but all these other ancient languages, they're dead. Oh, yeah. They're not, they're not used anymore. Yeah. So, so I, I guess there, there must be enough um, historical texts that still survive that you could study these languages. Also, some of them are so similar to Hebrew. Uh, yeah. So like when we do, I did a course in like um, Northwest Semitics uh, where, you know, you look at the language of the ancient Israelites and then the immediate neighbors and, and let's say Ammonite, right? Or Moabite. They're so similar to Hebrew. Really, it, it, it's easy enough to read the stuff. Um, similar in, in the written form or spoken? Yeah. In the written form. Um... The languages were super similar. Yeah. Would you, um, do they use the same characters? I don't remember at this point, but I, but it was not difficult. I mean, it was an alphabet. Um, Just like in Hebrew. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could recognize Hebrew alphabet if I see it. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you, you know, anything yeah. other than I that. I mean, the thing but... is, it was like, we're talking inscriptions on stone, so. Yeah, okay. It's not quite looking like, you know, the Hebrew in the Bible. It's like, but um, I, I don't think they were that different from what I remember. Again, it's been a long time ago since I've actually looked at, you know, the actual, <laughs> like, etchings. Let's put it that way. I usually just use transliteration now. I'm like calling it a day. You know, um, I, it, it's funny that you point out that these are etchings on stone. <laughs> Because up until this point, I I was thinking, you know, papyrus and that sort of thing. But no, this is stone. <laughs> it's a stone. That's it. That's what they, I mean, you know, I mean, if you're going to get into like Mesopotamia, there there are also scrolls. But but like for Moab, uh, that's like what we have is inscriptions like carved into a stone. Yeah. Um, papyrus, that's uh, that's Egypt, right? That Papyrus is Egyptian and then Mesopotamia and other, they have scrolls. Um, and lots of stone stuff on stone. Lots and lots on stone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually do remember now vaguely, um, you know. Oh, and ancient... clay. Tons on clay tablets. Clay, oh, yes. Boy. So much on clay because they loved keeping records. So Mesopotamia, you're going to have, like, so many clay things with, like, writing. You know, it's kind of funny, like, um, this is, this is how they kept their records. (laughs) Tablets. Mm -hmm. Clay tablets, yeah. Clay and stone tablets. Yeah. So many clay tablets, it's insane. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to, uh, to visualize, like, what the organizing uh, 
the way that, you know, how they would even organize these things. The scribes, it was like a huge deal to be a scribe back then. Yeah. Like it took a ton of training. So the scribes would like have a system. Yeah. Yeah. And in Mesopotamia, like in Babylon, the writing was so complicated that um, it, it really was left to the scribes. Uh, so I, I'm I'm guessing that most people back then were illiterate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I know because books are probably hard to come by. <laughs> and also, I mean, if you're talking cuneiform, it's it's not like like an alphabet. Fine, it's not that hard to learn an alphabet. Yeah, but cuneiform man, that writing system is so complicated and so difficult. What is that? It's, uh, they, they took it from the Sumerians. So basically you have um, kind of pictographs. Uh-huh, kind of like hieroglyphs? Kind of, yeah. And then each one can, well, not each one, but a lot of them can either symbolize something or be syllabic. But oh, a lot okay. can be more than one syllable. <laughs> so when you have like a series of four together forming one word, you have to figure out what syllable it is that fits with the other ones. Oh wow, that is. I was very... terrible at that. <laughs> yeah, I. How would you even study that? How would you even know what's what? Because you start seeing patterns. Okay. If you read enough cuneiform text, you start seeing patterns, and you can recognize the patterns. So it becomes actually like, for example, the word man, right? You're you're gonna have the a sign, and then the we, and then the um, and you see it so many times because the word for man that you're like you see those three, and you're like, yeah, Awiwa. You know, it's just like you know it. Yeah. Um. I'm actually quite amazed at people who study ancient languages where it's not like there are, you know, books or audio tapes or whatever to tell you, like, what the symbol, what sounds and meanings the symbols represented. Like, yeah, yeah how do you even, like, figure that out, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, really, is it? Is it? Is it basically guessing? I mean, okay, Hebrew, you have a tradition that there's a tradition going back. So, so Hebrew, like we have a clue, but like, I don't know, ancient Akkadian, do we really know? How would we know? Uh, well, I know pattern is one sort of way to decipher it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, how... decipher, yeah, but what it sounds like, what they, how they would say it. Oh, I see. Yeah, that yeah. part, yeah, you wouldn't know. There's no way to know. Yeah. I think the meaning, maybe, you oh, could Oh, the meaning decide. you could get, yeah. Yeah, you could decipher based on compared, you know, compared texts and context and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the thing is yeah. that, again, especially with Akkadian, there's so many tablets that were there that we really, at this point, like, know a lot about Akkadian as language. So, what, what, who spoke Akkadian? You had it in um, Mesopotamia. So you had, um, first you had Akkad, which was kind of like an older um, kingdom. And then you had the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So both the Assyrians and the Babylonians spoke Akkadian. Okay. So okay. they interacted a lot with Israel, which is why I, I first got interested was um, they were kind of like the superpowers for- uh, Yeah, back they then. They were yeah. here for a while. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so in, in your master's studies, you went into the, uh, the languages and Old Testament. Okay, yeah. yeah. But you, you went as far as PhD. So, like, yeah. what possessed you to go? 
Um, right and there. actually, I went straight into PhD to a PhD program and just got my master's on the way, which looking back was a mistake. I shouldn't have oh. done that. Why? I wasn't ready. Right out of college, I should have done a master's first and figured out what I was doing. I, there's so much I didn't know. So you took, you went straight from undergrad to master's to PhD just without a, PhD. a break. It was a PhD program and then they just gave me the master's, you know. Once oh, it was comes. a PhD program. That's the thing. So I never did a master's program. So okay. suddenly I'm like with a bunch of doctoral students and there's so much they know that I don't even know what they're talking about. Uh-huh. Um, I, it, 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 it was bad. I mean, I really, I was not prepared. I knew biblical Hebrew. That's why I got in, I think. You know, I had three years of biblical Hebrew. I was very prepared in terms of biblical Hebrew. But in terms of, like, understanding like, <laughs> basic things about the Bible uh -huh. um, and about ancient Israel, eh, um, I, I hadn't taken that many Bible classes. Oh, okay. So yeah. your PhD was about... Uh, was about the biblical text. Yeah, Bible in the ancient Near East. So suddenly, like, I'm just expected to know these things that, and everybody knew their Bible so much better than I knew mine. Uh -huh. Oh, my God. I mean, the way that I can just come up with texts now, you know, when I started, I couldn't do any of that. I, I didn't understand how people could do that. <laughs> it was so foreign to me, and people were doing it. Yeah, repetition. I mean, in part because they were religious, so they knew these texts. Were, were there a lot of religious people or was it very yeah. mixed? Yeah. It was mixed, but I, you know, I would say about two thirds was either religious Christians or Jews. Mm -hmm. And then the ones who were not religious were at the same disadvantage in terms of like being like, what? Right. Because then it's not just about um, looking at the text, uh, but it is the, the, the doctrine, doctrinal education that helps to sort of interpret that text. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, if you're, if you grew up as an Orthodox Jew, mm -hmm. you already really know the Bible, chunks, huge chunks of it already. Yeah. And those of us who are coming in without that, it, I mean, especially me without even the bloody masters, um, <laughs> it, it wasn't the right choice. I, I really should have done masters first. And I applied to some master's programs and got in, and then I just thought, oh, I'm just going to go right for the PhD, but. Oh, maybe you just wanted to fast track it, you know, back then. I like... wanted to fast track it, which is the dumbest thing I could have done because it took me forever to get, to get out of there. Yeah. I had like the longest PhD in the history of the program for a good amount of time. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. Because um, PhD is one of those uh, things that you could take forever to finish. <laughs> yeah. It was supposed to be six years and it took me 14, so it was not good. <laughs> Wow, yes. Not good at all. <laughs> oh, no, that was not fast-tracking at all. <laughs> no, I, I was like one of those um, one of those cases where, where they would give a negative example. <laughs> you know, what not to do. So, so were, you, were you like, at what point were you like, okay, just get it done? <laughs> you know, it took, and I feel... This was horrible. So I was I was on my third PhD, um, my dissertation topic. Uh, I took my third one. Um, I wasted five years on the second one, and then the third one just suddenly clicked. And the thing that actually got me through was um, the dean of arts and sciences decided, okay, uh, we're going to make a new rule, <laughs> which is that you can only be here so long, and then you go bye bye. <laughs> 
So he actually gave a whole bunch of us who had been in the program, who'd been in arts and sciences forever for all different programs. Like anybody who I think was over a decade, he's like, you have a year. Uh-huh. And he got us a dissertation coach. Okay, good. Nice. And he, it was an experimental program to see if this dissertation coach could help, you know, nudge us. Uh-huh. And the only reason I finished was a dissertation coach. Otherwise, you might still be doing it. <laughs> oh, I would have been thrown out. Yeah. <laughs> and I submitted my, I remember, I submitted my, my dissertation at five o'clock on the deadline. Yeah. The very last day. Yeah. And I remember there was a song from Donnie Darko playing on the radio where the one woman left in the office was sitting and it was like, whoa. So every time I hear that song, it makes me think of like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) getting the dissertation into them, like right at the deadline. And I was not the only one. There was this guy from math. That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Who was at the five o'clock deadline too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I re- I remember those deadlines. I I remember there were a couple of times when I actually had to walk my paper to the professor's residence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um but um okay, so but you you finally did finish it. So wait, so you went through you said three different dissertation ideas? Yeah. What was your first one? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, oh boy, do I remember. Yeah, you don't forget that. Because I spent <laughs> six months on that before I gave up. I loved my first time. I wanted to try to prove that the Song of Songs was connected with, with an institution called the Marzeach. Okay. Which was yeah, kind of like a funerary memorial thing. Um, it was it was first suggested, as far as I'm aware, by this guy Pope, who wrote this really cool commentary on the Song of Songs. He was at Yale, I think, forever. Um, so I read it in Pope, and and I was like, I want to prove this. Uh, six months, realized there was no way to connect the Song of Songs to the Marseillach as much as I wanted to. Mm. So then my advisor says to me, Hey, I know what you could do since you like the Song of Songs. Why don't you prove that they thought it was erotic in ancient Israel? And I said okay so i spent five years basically going in circles trying to find a way to figure out how to prove what was considered erotic in ancient israel and then to say oh look the song of songs fits that which was insane and uh-huh. it was it was five years of like i mean i got a culinary degree during those five years because i was like so sure i was going to quit that i was like okay let's pivot um which of course didn't help that I was in cooking school full time while I was like, you know, supposed to be writing. Uh, then after five years. Um, Wait, hold on a second. Yeah. You were in cooking school. Yeah. I went and got a culinary degree in the middle of those five years. <laughs> and I was running the writing center. I was running writing tutorial services too. So I was like doing a bunch of stuff other than my dissertation. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. So you have a culinary degree. I have a culinary degree. So yeah. if this doesn't work out, you could go. <laughs> and I was about to quit and start working at restaurants. That was it. That was the path. Because I knew this dissertation wasn't going to happen. Wow. That, yeah. That's quite interesting. So wait, uh, what's your specialty in terms of cuisine? Or, I mean, I actually really like baking. I probably would have ended up working for a bakery. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I became really, really interested in baking. I don't know if I would have been more like bread or pastry, probably pastry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, that was kind of my love. Even when I moved to LA, like I thought about applying for some jobs doing baking. So it was there for a while. Yeah. Baking is, I find, I find baking, uh, to be kind of, uh, meditative sometimes. Um, it's cooking. It, it feels like a frenzy. Well, unless you organize everything well. So if you're organized and you get all the prep work, you know, all done and then, and then you cook, then it's just a matter of cooking. But, um, but like the way I cook is cause I want to save time. I'll let's say I'm making a stir fry. So I'll chop up some onions, put that on the pan. And as it's browning, as it's caramelizing, yeah. I'm chopping up something else to throw in, you know, on top of that. And I invariably end up overcooking stuff because I'm not timing things. Right. Yeah. But you get a feel for timing and you know, yeah. Yeah. No, I do that too when I'm in a hurry. Yeah, but like in in a restaurant, you know, you have um, people chopping things up for yeah, you. Yeah, you have your homies in plus. Everything's set up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still frenzied as any. That's right. Yeah, it is frenzy, right? Cooking oh, yeah. is, is a frenzy. But baking, though, is a little different, I feel like. Yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's almost meditative. Um, yeah, I think I would have done much better on the baking yeah. path than the yeah. Yeah. Um, I tried making croissants at home once, and the amount of time that it took. Oh my god. Yeah. I know. Uh, but but to speed things up, instead of chilling um, the dough in the refrigerator for two hours between each step, I decided I'll just put, stick it in the freezer for ten minutes. <laughs> But of course, I forgot about the part oh. where the yeast has to rise. That's why you're sticking it in the refrigerator for two yeah. hours. It's not, it's not just a matter of hardening the butter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But anyway, so it came out very um, dense inside. The outside looked perfect, though. Uh, That's good. At least yeah. it looked pretty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we, uh, I digress. Um, so yeah, you have a culinary degree. Wow. So is that something that you could still fall back on if, if things don't work yeah. out? That's <laughs> one I've forgotten so It's much. been too long? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's far too long. Um, so your topic three actually went pretty quickly once I had it. What was it? Um, it was sexual. It was actually based on a chapter, a, a, a hundred plus page chapter from dissertation topic two, where I was looking for erotic elements and I, I had this whole dumb theory about erotic elements. And one of them was basically um, what I called sexual transgression. What, sexual what? Sexual transgression. Okay. Which includes, um, uh, that ended up actually being the dissertation topic I went with. I just took this chapter and made it into a dissertation. So basically sexual transgression includes um, like violation of like God's rules about sex, like adultery or, you know, incest or bestiality. Then you have violation against like civil rules. That's also sexual transgression, like things that are outlawed by um, the judicial system. And then I also had as part of sexual transgression, things like rape, things that um, are violation of a person's personhood um, of a sexual nature that caused trauma. So I ended up actually studying all that. And making this whole crazy thesis that 
um, I don't believe anymore, but at the time I was very excited about. It. Wait, so, um, so what was your thesis? Oh, what, what was the actual thesis? So my actual thesis was that there were three kinds of sexual transgression in ancient Israel, um, and that they actually overlapped. So you have transgression against God, transgression against basically society, and transgression against individual people. And then the um, massive dissertation, which was almost, I think, 400 pages, was um, showing how each one was conceptualized in biblical texts and then how they interacted. It was a massive tone. And um, I mean, parts of it I still, I think, are right. But my whole idea that you, about these three different types of transgression, I'm not so sure. You don't think there are three types or you don't think those categories necessarily exist? Categories. I don't think that's how they conceptualize things. I think I was wrong. Oh, I see. Okay. So they conceptualized yeah. it differently than what you thought. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So, um, do you have an example as to like how they would have conceptualized it differently than what you said? There were, there were things that I realized afterwards that didn't fit into any of my categories. Okay. Like, like stuff, like for example, stuff that could be considered violation of cosmic law. Like that seemed to go against the rules of the universe that I was trying to shove into like religious transgression, but eh. cosmic law, uh, yeah. was that a concept in ancient? Well, that's uh, the problem is I think it may have been, I think it may have been, and I did not have anything. I mean, I just kind of put that with transgressing God against God. You know, um, I guess I'm looking at it in a very sort of um, modern lens because I feel like, you know, the universe and that sort of thing always sounded to me a bit new agey. Um, but so is that a concept that existed in ancient cultures? I think it is. And remember that in ancient Israel, they didn't believe in just one God. So you're talking about a cosmos where you have um they they acknowledge other gods existed they're not supposed to be worshiping them some of them are worshiping them but you definitely have these other gods there Ah, uh, okay yes so yeah it's not like oh god created the universe so we're done uh -huh. <laughs> it doesn't work like that that's not how they thought about things eventually they got to the point of god created the universe and we're done but but that wasn't the way it was for a good chunk of ancient Israeli history. I mean, if you go before the Babylonian exile, yeah, there's a lot of Baal worship and making cakes for the queen of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and they're doing a lot of stuff there that shows that they believed in other gods. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. Um... You know, the fact that in Leviticus, you, you have to be told not to sacrifice your babies to Chemosh. Yeah. I mean, really? You have to be told that? Yeah. That yeah. means some people were doing that. Some people and were. Molech. Oh, don't sacrifice your babies to Molech. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, some people were sacrificing to Molech. Don't do that. Yeah. Yahweh doesn't want you doing that. <laughs> and please, maybe you shouldn't like build a whole temple to Baal. And have all this like worship in there with like 450 priests. 
You know, it just occurred to me that the first commandment is, Thou shalt not have any other god before me. Right. Um, don't worship other gods. Don't worship other gods. That's it. But what's interesting is, it's just occurring to me, just as you're talking now, that, because um, in my mind, there's just one god. The other gods don't actually exist. The other gods are things that people made up. They're not actual gods, you know. But that's not how it's, it's not. written. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, they believe those other gods not only were real, but had power. Yeah. So it's not like they actually say, no, there's actually, all these other gods are actual false gods. It doesn't actually say that. Uh, no, there are. Eventually it does. Yeah, eventually it takes it does. a while. Yeah. It's really with the Babylonian exile where, I mean, okay, before the exile, you do have some prophets saying there's only one God. Yeah. You do have them saying that nobody seems to be really listening. I mean, Amos definitely was like on the, there's only one God track, but. Yeah. There um, were still a lot of people worshiping other gods. I mean, I guess if you're looking at the Bible now, you know, now that it's been codified and sort of package as a as a one as one succinct you know a uh, collection of text uh not succinct but anyway you know cohesive collection of text um you know there is a beginning and in the beginning was god and god created everything and, and everything starts from there um, and that's why the bible opens that way. what that's why the bible opens that way yes yes um Let's establish at the beginning, one God. <laughs> the, the, the final editors of the Bible were like, we're starting with that. One God created everything. Okay, let's get that straight. Right. But but this cod this codification happens way later. Yes. Right. Yeah. So then there was a lot of confusion yes. uh, back then. And, and you think, had to, like, it was an uphill battle to convince people not to worship other gods. I think that's something, that that's a historical context that I think, looking at it from the modern lens, you sort of take that for granted. Um, because we are looking at it from hindsight, you know, it's like everything already happened. And we know what we know now. And, and so it seems kind of obvious to me, because it's already been put together for us. Uh, but there was a time when it wasn't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. they conceived the, the makings of the universe very different from what we do. It, it really is entirely different. How did they conceive the world? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's an excellent question, because I can tell you that Genesis 1 story was not it for a long time. It's a very good question. I don't know what they thought about creation. Because what if you really believe there's all these different gods? I don't know. Yeah. It's an excellent question. It it's amazing that Judaism actually kinda took hold at all. <laughs> I think the Babylonian exile was essential in uh, their being able to pivot when they needed to pivot and create Judaism. 
And therein lies the reason for struggle and hardship and, and all these things. Yeah. Is sometimes it takes, that's what it takes. Yeah. For, uh, for people to come to certain realizations and come to a certain, yeah. Um, and to realize what is and is not essential for a religion. Yeah. Babylonian exile was awesome because they realized, oh, we don't need the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, you, you're getting a lot of sun right now. <laughs> it's not sun. I think it's the lamp suddenly got brighter. Yeah. It's, Let me see yeah, you're flooded with health. light. Let's see if that does anything. That's, that's a little better. Yeah, Here, you're let still, me turn this. You're still very overexposed. Okay, that's Okay, that's better. I can put the lamp down on the floor, too. No, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, wow, your equipment has a mind of its own. Uh, this... I don't know why the lamp did that. Yeah. That's so weird. What were we talking about? Uh, what they may have believed about the nature of the cosmos and the creation and all that. Uh, Judaism. Well, okay. Oh, I think yeah. I made the comment. Like, uh, I'm surprised that uh, I'm oh, amazed geez. at how Judaism actually took hold. Yeah. And yeah, you were saying something to that. Oh, yeah, about Babylonian exile, I think, had a lot to do with it. Because, again, they don't right. They realize that. And then when Ezra brought the scrolls, I do think that made a big difference when he's just like, the law, the law, the law. Well, guess what? If you're going to be the law, the law, the law, you really don't need a temple. You have your law. You have your Torah scrolls. Go off. Go off everywhere. You know what? You can worship anywhere. All you need are your Torah scrolls. <laughs> So it made it super easy to like have a religion that you could carry with you anywhere. That's what happened. Yeah. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of makes sense. It also kind of makes sense as to how it evolved to what it was at the time of Jesus. Yeah. And, and Jesus was basically criticizing them. All you care about are the fucking freaking laws. Which yes. <laughs> I mean, the Pharisees were like, yes, and <laughs> yes, it's all the laws. That's it. That's all it's ever been for like, well, since Ezra. <laughs> you know, at that point, it had already been a couple of centuries that it was all about the law. So, yeah. Oh, Ezra. I think that's where I left off. I think I was in the middle of Ezra. Yeah. yeah. No, Ezra, I think, had a lot to do with that. Um. Okay, see, now it uh, all kind of makes sense. <laughs> it, it is, you know what, it's so funny. Um, but also, I think to me, um, is that um, in the Christian context, and uh, the biblical teaching in the Christian context, at least the one that I, you know, grew up in, uh, is so focused on sort of the moral teaching the spiritual teaching in the in, in the and that aspect of the interpretation of the text and how we apply those principles in our lives today and contextualizing to you know our lives uh that the, i i feel like there isn't enough of the historical context being taught and maybe because um they don't you know the people who 
teach the Bible and Christian churches don't actually study the historical context as much. I mean, there's only so much you could study, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, um, it matters what path they took, but, um, you know, some have a background, some don't. Um, yeah, but I, I think even so, like, you know, you go for um, master's in religion or, you know, postdoc or, you know, whatever, uh, to in order to become a... Uh, you know, a pastor or minister, right? So it's like, I don't know how many years, I think my sister, you know, three years and then two more years, I think so five, five to six years, maybe seven years altogether. Um, it, it could also vary depending on the denomination. Um, but anyway, you're, you're talking a good chunk of your life devoted to study. And, um, you know, and there's only so much that you could cram in that I think if something had to fall to the wayside, it is, you know, the history, the history, <laughs> the nitty gritty history, actually. I think, I think they do do historical study, but maybe in like, um, sort of, uh, big, um, yeah, broader sweep, broader, yeah, broader strokes yeah. as opposed to like, yeah. Because it, how, I mean, it's not always a priority. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, though. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, but yeah. OK, see, now now it makes sense as to why, why Judaism went in that direction. So by the time Jesus comes, why they were so uh, focused on the law. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. 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 And you get why most Jews, when they heard it, were like, what? Right. Like what he was saying was like, it, you, you either thought it was the most brilliant thing you ever heard mm-hmm. and then you became a Christian because you were like, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or you were like, no, <laughs> this is what the law says. We're going to do what the law says. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the end of it. Um, so is Judaism now still very heavily focused on laws? Okay. Yes. <laughs> what happened is um, once you had the diaspora and they brought their Torah scrolls, la, 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 la. Um, then you had rabbinic Judaism become the primary form of Judaism, where the focus was on big shock, the Torah laws. And what they decided to do was start explaining the Torah laws and then explaining those explanations as time went on and new questions arose and things changed and then explaining and then explaining and explaining. And that's how you got the Talmud which is basically just a bunch of stuff explaining the Torah laws. And then you have all this commentary after. So you have like in the Talmud today, you'll have like the Bible text. And then all around you have so many different commentaries from all these different periods and places and stuff. So yeah, it's all centered on the law. Mm-hmm. It's all about the law and commentary on the law. Um, I mean, orthodox at least, you know. And, and the... The interpretations change, right? Oh, With yes. Time. Yeah, okay. In but terms you still of like... have to, in Orthodox Judaism, it's still important to know, you know, how the interpretations evolved and what different interpretations were. That That's considered to have great value. Um, I, I find that, um, I mean, I guess every religion has some aspect of this, you know, rules and laws and stuff that govern. I don't know if govern is the right word, but um, 
you know, um, I, for lack of a better word, that govern, you know, the that religion. Um, but I find that uh, expressions of certain religions where it's heavily relied on the rules or the mm-hmm. laws, um, I find that sometimes they take it to kind of a ridiculous level. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to make it fit uh, as times change, as, you know, cultural, you know, societal rules change, as technology changes, as, you know, different things. In Orthodox Judaism, you see this. Yeah. You see it a lot because of all the things that change. Yeah. So, and like the big question of whether a food is kosher, well, there's so many new food products that at this point, if you go to a website like the OU, the um, OU Orthodox Union, I think, um, it's like a running scroll because yeah. there's new food products all the time. Yeah. So like they have to determine, is it kosher? Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, uh, I think one, one thing uh, in Orthodox Judaism is the, keeping the Sabbath. Right. Uh, right. That's where they go to some extremes. Yeah. Yeah. They do go to some extremes where, mm-hmm. um, so one thing <clears throat> I heard about is how, um, I forget what it's called, where they sort of string up lights or, or something along a path so that, um, cause I think the Sabbath, you cannot operate any kind of machinery, but there are certain types that you have to, you know, let's say like a baby carriage i'm not sure if this is actually accurate but but let's say something like a baby carriage is operating a machinery maybe it's not because it's mechanical there's no you know actual motor motors or anything involved i i know that in terms of like electric stuff you can't turn it off right um i think in terms of the manual labor type stuff it gets more confusing like things like pushing a carriage I'm assuming you can do that. I mean, I've um, seen women doing that, like on Shabbat, so I know you can do that. Right. So, so I'm probably not getting the the details of this correct, but um, there's this thing where they string up either lights or something along a path, so that, uh, you know, that allows an exemption to, um, you know, to the rule. Huh. and allows you to do something like um you know go from one place to the other um yeah i forget what it's called um yeah i'm not sure yeah um so i know this is probably maybe being unfair but you know uh, there's a there's a series on netflix called unorthodox i don't know if you saw oh that. i saw unorthodox yeah okay yeah but there's this one scene where uh, the main character, she goes to the lobby and all these other women are there with their kids and they can't leave because uh, of something. And they said something is down. The sun uh, is down. No, no, no. It's not the sun. Oh. It's not the sun. It's something. It's that thing that I'm talking about. I forget oh. what it's called. Oh, and wow. until okay. until that's repaired, they can't actually go uh to you know their in-laws you know homes to you know join you know the meal or whatever but the main character because she was still um uh, she didn't have kids 
um so she was able to go and like, why don't you go because you can you know because she did not need that thing oh the heredity you're talking about the heredity jews okay yeah <clears throat> they're like their rules are, are even stricter than regular orthodox yeah yeah um and then there's um this is uh many years ago i used to watch uh religion and ethics on pbs um it's like half hour show and you know they feature different news and stories about religion and ethics and all that and there was one time and i got so mad that i actually was screaming at the tv uh because the story was how you know in uh, catholicism that if you get divorced you can't get married in a catholic church mm-hmm. as a you know on, in secret marriage so what they what the catholic church did was to uh, in order to allow people to get remarried in a Catholic church, they would have to essentially uh, uh, claim the first marriage annulled. They yeah. have to annul the first marriage. Yeah. And this, and the first marriage, like you could have children with the first marriage and you could still get an annulment. And yeah. I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. Why don't you just, because it's a stupid rule. <laughs> I know, a, but that's the rule. I know, but it's a stupid rule to forbid someone to get married in a Catholic church while but they're still. Jesus said, "What did Jesus say?" Matthew nine. Jesus said that basically, once you marry, you are married. Period. In God's eyes, and even if you get divorced, guess what? If you remarry, you're committing adultery with. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Jesus yes. said. Yes. That's it. No, I know, but the spirit of what he said is. Don't get divorced. Not you get divorced, <laughs> then you have to get the first marriage annulled so that essentially that didn't happen, even though you have children by them. Because here's the thing if that's true, you have children by this man, then you had kids at a wedlock. That's right. what you're essentially saying. Yes. So you committed some form of uh some form of a sexual sin anyway. <laughs> I know. Do you know what I and mean? That's putting the word of the law up. Above the spirit of the law. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Catholics do that. Sure. Catholics do that. I'm sure there are different Protestant denominations that do different things. Like Baptists, for example, um, you know, would... They're, they're so focused on the act of baptism, the complete submersion uh, of, um, of the person in the act of baptism that any other form is discounted. <laughs> And I'm like, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because I'm Presbyterian. We don't dunk people. You know, we sprinkle them. <laughs> I know, but. You know, it's yeah. like, <clears throat> I know. It, you know, things like that. Well, do you think that I'm not going to go to heaven because, you know, I didn't get dunked? Is God really going to say. It was a real baptism. Right, exactly. Is God That's really going to say, I'm sorry, you didn't get dunked, so I'm not going to let you in, you know? Yeah. No, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> According to them, it does. That's yeah. the beautiful thing about religion is you get to decide <laughs> what the rules are. And if you want to believe that everybody's going to hell. Who wasn't fully dunked in their baptism because it didn't count? Yeah. Okay. Right. And this is why this is why we have a gazillion denomination in the Protestant church. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
because we can't agree on every every little thing. Um, yeah, this is is it's kind of interesting. So, um, okay, so you finally finished your PhD. You yeah. did it. Fourteen years, yay! Which made me pretty much dead in the water on the job market. So, what yeah. really? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, I could have tried harder. I didn't try very hard. But when you take fourteen years to do your PhD and you publish zero articles <laughs> during those fourteen years, uh. um, even if your dissertation is really good, um, it, it's a strength against you. So, I mean, I really, I, but I didn't put myself out there. You know, I applied yeah. to one job, made it to the final round, and I was like, okay. And then I, I didn't do anything else. Yeah. Uh, so, was your first job a teaching job? Um, in LA, I actually never got um, something final related. So I was doing stuff unrelated. I was doing um, SAT prep ah, and yeah. um, adult ESL. And yeah. then when I moved here, um, you know, it, it just happened that our next door neighbors, one of them was like a very well-known member of the English department. And he knew um, the head of the religious studies department. So he's like, oh, just, you know, do this, that, and this, and I'll tell them about you. And that's how I eventually got a job at UNM adjuncting was. Uh... Yeah, so what you're teaching, what you've been teaching for the past 10 years, I guess, or more, uh, is actually very interesting. So what are some of the topics that you cover? Uh, so I teach Western religions, which is Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And then uh, let's see, in terms of Bible, I've done gender and Bible, um, or the Bible and gender, I forget which way it is, sexuality in the Bible, biblical law. Um, and then I just started teaching sex and religion. And I used to teach a class that I haven't taught in a while, um, modern occult and contemporary paganism. Wow. I know hey. the outlier. I loved that class. I loved that class but we're gonna um, have to we're gonna have to get into that because i know probably very little about it oh man it's the most fun <laughs> it, that was an awesome class to teach i would love to teach you that so so mo wait say it again modern occult modern occult so so we spend the first half of the class talking about basically 19th century occult movements right and then contemporary paganism so the pivot point is wicca because Wicca actually connects modern occult very nicely to contemporary paganism. So we do modern occult, then we do Wicca, and then from there we get into paganism. So um, define those things for me, occult, Wicca, and paganism. Okay, so occult, basically, occult has a couple of different meanings, but basically um, it can be just things that are hidden, like hidden knowledge, right? Um, in terms of religious movements, it's usually movements that, um, it, that are... It, not commonly known like they're kind of um under the radar so there's this sort of a secret or hidden knowledge that you're discovering or it's knowledge about hidden or secret things so one of the things you have with all the cult movements um at least the ones we go into is there's this idea that what we see with our senses in the universe is a fraction of what's there mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of stuff out there beyond that and what you learn about when you become a member of one of these occult groups is what's out there and how to harness it. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff with like magic, right? Yeah. Because once you harness the, this energy and, and these forces that are out there, um, you can use them. So that's so, how you do your magic. Okay. 
uh, sorcery and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like, these forces that, that are, again, beyond our sensory perception, but are very real. Uh, does that also include like medium? Yeah. In fact, okay. that's what we start with. I always start after like the, the, the roots of all of this, you know, where we talk a little bit about the ancient and medieval world and ideas about magic and witchcraft and all that. Um, we start with mediums. Mm -hmm. Because mediumship is really, I, I think, crucial. This whole idea that the dead are, are basically, their spirits are still really present. And it's just yeah. finding a way to reach them. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, like, the Bible doesn't really go too much into any of those things. It oh, really Witch doesn't. Endor. What? The Witch of Endor. She raises uh, Samuel. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but that's it. That may be it. Yeah, you don't have too much reason, like spirits. I think no. Samuel would be it. And he wasn't happy about um, it. In the New Testament, you have parables uh, that Jesus, uh, you know, talks about. About, you know, hell and heaven and, you know, and the spirit world. I don't know if there is much mention in the Bible about that. Um, about, I mean, about much else than that. Um, yeah, but there is, uh, I believe it, there is that, you know, there's a whole world that we can't see. Yeah. That's, um, that's basically the, the whole idea behind the cult. That's it. Actually, about yeah. Communing with the dead and that sort of thing, like that scares me, actually. Oh yeah. I'm oh yeah. There. You have oh, man, to be. And speaking of, last night I watched um, Hereditary. Oh oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my god, that's such a freaky movie. Is... Oh man, speaking about how you should not follow people's instructions to how to commune with your dead kid. Wow. Oh my gosh, that that is such a freaky movie. <laughs> so yeah, that medium there. shift. Uh huh. There's in the end, it wasn't really. There, there, are two, there are two scenes that really, really freak me out in that movie. One is uh, when the daughter gets decapitated. Oh God! That is yeah. that is so freaky. <clears throat> yeah. And the other one is sort of related to that when the mother is floating, and she is slicing her neck. That was so nasty. <laughs> so that was so nasty yeah. spoiler alert if anybody's listening and you didn't see the movie yeah but um i agree those were the two scenes that for me were like the freakiest it's the freakiest everything else like you know i you kind of have seen different versions of that in other horror movies and stuff but uh yeah um so in reality, the 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 concept of that spiritual world and the dead and all that stuff, you know, it really freaks me out. You know, um, that like that's not something that you want to ever toy with, um, you know, in real life. But I love movies about that. About the same things. here. Yeah, um, because we know so little of it. So and sometimes like you, what you imagine. Uh, it, you know, I don't know if it's cathartic or, or something because like, cause I think what you fear is what you don't know. So if you could see something, you know, 
being played out, maybe it seems a little less mysterious. Still freaky. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, but uh, yeah. And the other genre I love is pagan horror. Love pagan horror. Pagan horror. So is that like witches sacrificing people and that sort of thing? Yeah, anything with like pagan movements, like human sacrifices. Yeah. Is there, there's a there's a movie something about a the a guy uh, being burned alive in this straw. <gasps> the Wicker Man. Oh, okay, yeah, the Wicker Man. Oh my God, yeah. I love the Wicker Man. I have not seen it. Oh, see it, see the original. Yeah. Okay. The second one you can miss. The second movie isn't nearly as good, but um, actually, it's kind of funny because these it's about these reborn Christians and they end up being sacrificed <laughs> by the pagans. Yeah. I mean, part of why they get sacrificed is that they're also reborn virgins. <laughs> so they're like, ooh, virgin sacrifices. <laughs> it was the funniest thing. So uh, there were a couple moments that were worth it for that second one. But the first one, with the original Wicker Man, man, that is cool. Yeah. Uh, that is a cool movie. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and, and you know, look for it. Um, how did we get into this? Oh, pig, the, what you're teaching, paganism. Yeah. Okay, so you were defining paganism. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's modern occultists basically like, you know, learning about those forces that, that we don't see with our senses and how to harness them. Yeah. And then um, modern um, contemporary paganism is worshiping the old gods. I'm sorry, worshiping what? The old gods. Ah. That's all it is. It's bringing back the old gods, the pre-Christian gods, the pre-Islamic gods. And worshiping them again. Uh, like nature gods, mm -hmm. celestial gods, things exactly. like that. Yeah. Um, are oh, they yeah. are pagans um my my uh understanding of paganism is really more about nature than things like zeus and you know yeah. like right it's like it's nature gods right? a lot of them are nature gods like the yeah. biggest movements like in scandinavia it's like really big to to worship i mean it is nature but it's also the old gods it really is bringing back the old gods too so, I mean, so if, if it's not nature gods, what are the old gods? Like Thor. Oh, um, so it is that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, you're also, there's also a lot of deities that are very tied to nature who you're also leaving offerings to. So it, it is a very nature-based religion. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean... Scandinavian gods like Thor and Odin and, you know... They're a little tied to nature, too. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Very much so. I mean, if you look at, the, you know, what the worship was. Yeah. Uh, when, when they were active, um, I mean, it, it, there were a lot of, like, they'd say groves and stuff. Like, a lot of nature-based yeah. worship sites. Poseidon? What, what culture is that? Poseidon? Is that Greek? Ancient Greece. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's ancient Greece. I sometimes get ancient Greece and ancient Rome mixed up. So Rome is like, similar. I know they're similar. Like Rome is like Apollo, Zeus. No. Zeus would be Greek and then Jupiter Zeus. would be the equivalent of Romans. Yeah, Zeus is Greek. <laughs> See, I get them mixed up. <laughs> and um, Apollo, I think, is Greek. And I mean, I'm not going to say Helios is the same as Apollo. Is Apollo the same in both? I don't know. 
Maybe you're right. Maybe all the gods I'm thinking about are Greek gods. So what are, who are the Roman gods? Usually they're just adaptations of the Greek gods, from what I know. Yeah, that's what I thought. But they yeah. have different names. Oh, yeah. like Aphrodite. Um, Great. And Diana. And, but like uh, Venus would be the Latin equivalent. Of right. Aphrodite. Wait, okay. Venus, Venus is Rome? Is Aphrodite. Or? I know, but which is... Aphrodite is Greek. Greek. Right. Aphrodite is Greek. Venus is Rome. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Diana is Greek. Greek. Okay. So all the gods I'm thinking about are Greek gods. Okay. Um, then uh, I don't really remember what the Roman equivalent gods are. Again, they're just, it's often the same god, different name. I know, but I, I, I'm having a hard time uh, remembering the names. Um, okay, so you uh, you teach that. So what what's um, so that's a that's a bit of a departure from your biblical studies. So oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So why did you get into paganism and and all that? It was actually so. I, the first semester I taught Western religions, um, I had a section towards the end on new religious movements, and one of those was um, contemporary paganism. And one of the students came up to me after and said, hey, I'd love to do an independent study with you. So we created an independent study course oh. and that was the modern occult of contemporary paganism. And then I liked it so much um, and I learned a tremendous amount doing it with him that um, I, I did a course proposal for it and it got approved and that's how it started. Nice. So you said you haven't taught that in a while. Yeah, the thing is... Um, the classes that I used to teach at night, like I love doing Tuesday evening seminars in the spring. Uh, when enrollment started to dwindle, that became less and less possible. Hmm. So I had a chair who was really gung-ho about those classes. Um, and then we switched chairs. And the new chair doesn't seem so gung-ho about modern occult contemporary paganism. So <laughs> and she hasn't been like, hey, why don't you teach that? And instead she's like, hey, why don't you create a brand new class on sex and religion and i said okay yeah but there you go yeah. yeah whatever she wants me to do i'm gonna do of course you know uh how, how is the sex and religion course going um it went well i taught it for the first time this past fall i'm gonna teach it again in the spring um next fall i'm gonna make some changes some things were the, the readings were too challenging oh okay i mean when there were readings that even i struggled with I think I need to get rid of those. Yeah, so okay. Some things need to change. <laughs> um, they're, they're they're challenging because why? Oh man! So like the the hardest one was I did a week of sacred sex, and I decided to get into really get into um, oh what is it called um in Hinduism, um, with the body fluids and everything. Um, I'm blanking on the name of it, but, um, that's okay. You could probably make it up and I won't know the difference. Yeah. Um, it basically like in Hinduism, you have this whole, um, weird, very strange system with, um, ways to connect with a divine that involve a lot of body fluids and sexual acts and it, it gets really weird. Mm -hmm. um, so I decided to go there 
Okay. And um, I can't t- tantra, tantra. Oh, tantra. Yes, yes. And yeah. tantra. Once you actually start getting into tantra, not looking at like the the wacky Western, like you know. That's the version I know. So so I decided let's really look into tantra. So once I started looking into tantra scholarship, thinking, oh, I can find something that they'll understand. I realized the the stuff that I could get access to, um, because of course I was one week ahead of the students, so I couldn't really do a lot of interlibrary loan, especially during like the pandemic. So I had to use only what was in the library um, that I could access online because the library was closed. It was so hard to understand. Mm. Oh man, I went through, I would say 10 different electronic sources, trying to find a reading on Tantra in India that, that they could understand. And the one I came up with was like the best of the bunch and it was really almost indecipherable. It was so hard to follow. Like I could barely follow them. Mm. So the students were like, ah, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> I need I need some reading on Tantra that, that's somewhere between like the total flakiness and yeah. like super hardcore dry academic that, that's just Yeah. It, it's such a complicated history. That's what I learned. Um so what so sex and religion um so what are the different religions do you include in that so we do judaism um christianity including both protestant and catholic islam hinduism buddhism um and a little bit of confucianism is confucian considered a religion i always thought it's actually no Taoism. sorry Taoism. okay yeah confucianism it's, it's like Taoism. Is it a religion? Uh-huh. Um, it's in I my book. Thought, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I always thought Confucianism was more like a, a, akin to philosophy than a religion per se. Which you can also say about Taoism. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, we do a little bit of Taoism too, but um, it, there is the question of whether it's a religion. Yeah. Um, I mean, my culture is is steeped in Confucius think um principles. Um I don't I don't know if we actually i I'm sure I'm sure some people study it. Um, uh, but as a culture I don't think we necessarily I think it's just so embedded in the culture. Certain principles are so embedded in the culture. It's just something you, you know, kind of absorb by osmosis or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, a lot like Taoism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, you, you could call it a religion, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think... Um, Maybe the way I'm looking at it is is purely from my own experience of it, because you know we don't really treat it like a religion. So it's it's just like, no, these are just principles and values of our culture. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, um. Okay. So yeah. So that's a lot of different religion. That's a yeah. There's a lot in there. So do you look at how a particular sex thing is in all those things or 
or you just what picking I decided to do is so the first half of the class we kind of like each week we do a different religion okay. so I spend that week like first of all giving like the basics of the religion because I don't know that they know anything about these religions right and then we talk a bit about sex and sexuality in each religion then what we do for the second half is themes mm. so we'll spend an entire week on views towards premarital sex Mm-hmm. And we'll look um, at three different religions, sometimes movements within those religions, and um, views on premarital sex. So you get overriding themes. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. So are you looking at it from sort of the modern iteration of those religions or, or particular historical context? Um, mostly for the second half, it's modern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not completely, but mostly. I mean, like, for example, with, um, with sacred sex, I did, it, it was heavier on the historical. Sure. Yeah. Cause I don't think it really happens in the major religions today. Does and it? There's still a lot of Tantra. It, that's something that was interesting. Well, Tantra, I don't know anything about. So yes, I, I it's guess still, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> there's still some, some pretty hardcore Tantra, but, but it's not as hardcore as it was back then. Yeah. Uh, um, and with Taoism, like the sort of thing that we're studying, they don't, I don't think they do anymore. That, the Taoist stuff is really wild, some of it. Um, but that, that was a while ago. So for that, we do historical, but a lot of it is more modern. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about Taoism. Oh, neither did I until like I was told I was teaching sex and religion. <laughs> and then I decided, okay, <laughs> I, I better, first of all, figure out how to teach this. And second of all, learn something about these religions. Yeah. yeah. So, so what is Taoism in a nutshell? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, I do think it's more philosophy. Yeah. And basically the whole idea is to be in alignment with the Tao. And the whole idea of the Tao is kind of like the natural way that the universe runs. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, So go yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, now it does ring a bell. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that is more like a philosophy than a religion. Yeah. So but then it are, has religious aspects too, and that's where it got interesting with sacred sex, because then it becomes like very much like a religion. Oh, interesting. So yeah. certain aspects of Taoism are, are heavily religious, and certain are not. There, it, there is that aspect too when it comes to like uh, feng shui. Uh, there's sort of like the surface practical kind of application principles and that sort of thing. But um, I heard that you could it, you could go really deep into it and it does become kind of religious, very huh. uh, spiritual. Um, no, what is that word? It's about energy, right? It is about energy, but it, it kind of gets really into in, very into like almost mystical kind of, you know, uh, areas. Um, yeah, it is about energy, energy flow, energy and energy flow. Um, yeah, I, I was interested in it for a while. Um, and so I kind of went to a few like different seminars or, or whatever. And the sort of the non spiritual, non, um, you know, aspect is called actually mundane. <laughs> and then the it's other, just... yeah. And then the other part, I don't, I can't remember if it's called spiritual or something else. I forget. I, it might be called something else, but anyway, yeah. 
you could get quite you know deep into it uh, but um, yeah okay so those are very interesting topics uh, which which is your favorite in sex and religion no I mean of all the courses that you've taught oh modern occult contemporary oh yeah <laughs> I mean that's just it's so much fun you know, we, we do Satanism for a week. We do um, uh, Nazis and the occult. I mean, we do fun stuff. That, that course yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So the Nazis did get into the occult. Some Nazis got into some, the occult. Okay, yeah. Some Nazis Hitler got Hitler definitely, I don't think, was part of that train, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, and they got hardcore into the occult. Yeah. So uh, it, it gets really interesting. Um, yeah, I love Nazis and the occult. And then when you pair it with like Aryan racial paganism, it's it's very mm -hmm. cool. So we also do like, you know, racial or racist paganism, whatever you want to call it, which is a really interesting, like, you know, white supremacist paganism thing. I love that stuff. That is fascinating. <laughs> Man. And you learn all these things, like, you know, what the 14 words are in the 88 precepts. And it's like, oh, that guy has a tattoo of that. Okay, I know what that means now. Wow. That, uh, so That's 88. Aryan pagan stuff. Racial Aryan pagan stuff. Um, so, like, the different tattoos that the, that the neo-Nazis wear or have on their skin, that's all... That, that all means something. That all means something. <laughs> and it's usually uh, race war stuff. Yes, probably. They're, they're waiting for that race war. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find all that. Maybe we should maybe we should talk about all that. Um, because I find all that quite interesting. Um, the. So lately I've been reading up somewhat on uh, sort of the race relations in uh, in the U.S. Um, and the histories and, you know, and all that stuff. Um, what I find interesting is the, uh, the relationship between black and white in the U.S. I feel like is a little bit unique uh, in its origins and in its evolution uh, that's different from... Uh, other cultures, even South Africa, even that, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's different. And, um, yeah, and uh, I, I guess I, I started looking into it to, one, to understand, uh, and then maybe think about ways to, you know, how, how can this actually become better? Um, because, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And yeah, I think the way, I think the way people are talking about it though, um, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are lots of conversations that are happening that are, you know, productive, maybe, you know, and heading in the direction that helps sort of, you know, bring people together. Uh, and go beyond the, you know, racial tensions that exist. Um, but I also feel like there are lots of conversations, ha you know, happening um, 
that are not productive. And I and not not only not productive, but also uh, that it's it's rooted in sort of I don't want to say false, but uh, I don't want to say misconceptions either, but like rooted in things that are maybe not quite right. It fits a certain narrative, Mm -hmm. but is that narrative actually, uh, I don't know. I guess you could say because a narrative is a narrative, right? So narrative is not necessarily right or wrong. It's a narrative. Some are more accurate than others. Right. Okay. So, and this is this is this is also part. You know, uh, an earlier statement I made. Sometimes when we look at history, we look at it through our you know contemporary lens, and doing so, doing it that way, does not always help you understand yeah. what actually happened and how things have progressed since then. Right. Because uh, when you do that, then uh, then all you see are horrible things. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like slavery was horrible. But at the time, that was actually very commonplace. Slavery has been around for eons. For a very... I'm not... And but any... Slavery has... I mean, I, all right. Like, if, if you look at who became slaves in the ancient worlds, it was people you conquered. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there, there was none of this race thing involved. Um, it, the whole idea yeah. of, like, a whole race of people are, like, intended by God to be enslaved or however they came up with a rationale for it. it, it it's, like, so different from what was going on in the ancient worlds with slavery, where the slaves, they weren't beneath you. They were just, yeah. like, you conquered and guess what once they bought their freedom they were equal to you yeah yeah um and actually so different well there 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 were different uh types of slavery there were sort of the intention indentured indentured servitude you know type of slavery and then there were um there there were uh like you were a slave for life you know type of slavery you were born into slavery there there were instances of those things but you're right it didn't become a racial thing until um africa you know and it became and it was a worldwide um you know venture um yeah and yeah but wow i know but it it's kind of I know, and and people listening to this will will think like, well, neither you or nor I are African or African descent, so should we even talk about that? Yeah, of course we can talk about it. Yeah, um, and I have to yeah. say that I know absolutely nothing about slavery after the what first century CE. <laughs> Let's first put it that way. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you study yeah. ancient history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've actually written about slavery in ancient Israel to some extent, but yeah. that's it. That's that's well really relevant. There, there it was, it was, there was some racial component there, uh, when the, when Egypt enslaved the Israelites. Uh, okay, not racial, ethnic, and also I'm not so sure that ever happened. Um, but I mean, I guess it is ethnic, because, you know, it's, they, they enslaved the people if we're going to go there. Yeah, okay, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have a lot of us versus them in terms of peoples, but it's yes. not race. Yes. Yes. No, you're right. There is that distinction. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're all Semitic. What's yeah. the difference? The difference was basically what, what you aligned with. Yeah. What you trace yourself back to. Wait, was Egypt, is Egypt considered Semitic? I mean, it's technically Africa, but it's North Africa. Yes. And there's a difference between Northern Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Culturally and ethnically, it, it is very different. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I, I think, I mean, they were really pretty involved in the politics of the ancient Near East. I yeah. mean, I know Egyptology is a different field. I never studied it. But when you think about how much Israel and Egypt were interacting and how much Egypt was getting involved in like the messes that they were creating with like, yeah. Syria. Yeah. Um, they were heavily involved in the ancient Near Eastern political scene. Yeah. In fact, I, I see, like, I look at the entire Mediterranean as yeah. sort of like a sort of one maybe not cohesive necessarily, but sort of like a related culture. There, there's some cultural yeah. similarities. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. So, yeah, I, I've been sort of curious about all those things. And, and so um, to kind of unravel some of it and why... I guess what I'm curious about is, is certain narratives that are being propagated today and, and perpetuated today is I'd like to understand the origins of those because some of those narratives, like, I feel like they're not productive and they're not, they don't really make sense. Um, not that they don't make sense. Okay. They make sense. Um, they may, they, they kind of make sense politically but they don't necessarily make sense culturally or or certainly not uh, they don't make sense in terms of like um you know um heading in a direction where things actually get better but anyway sorry we another rabbit hole how do we get into this <laughs> big big rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> you we were talking about what i i think the last question i asked you was uh which class you liked <laughs> oh and then we got into white supremacy is that how we oh that's right yeah we got into yeah. white supremacy yeah 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 okay yes the occult and uh, the neo-nazis yeah yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, that's that's a fascinating topic, too. And I feel like um, that also deserves some conversation because, uh, you know, what what I find interesting about um, hate groups is that they don't spring up in a vacuum. There's a there's a context there. Mm -hmm. um, and and also, you know, as as despicable, you know, and offensive as you know what they believe may be that they are still people you know um I, I don't know if you know uh daryl harris i think is his last name i have to look it up because i don't want to mess up his name
no, wait, okay. Davis, Daryl Davis. Okay, Daryl Davis, he's a musician. Uh, and um, he is famous for um, for turning, converting like hundreds of former KKK members to walk away from KKK. Um, oh, okay. Uh, and he did that like by talking to them one at a time, basically. Um, so he, he has, I think he has his own podcast too. And he's, 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 uh, spoken on many podcasts and, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so his approach, I think is absolutely right because he looked at them as people and like, I don't understand how you could hate me just because I look this way when you don't know anything about me and so why don't we talk you know so that you could get to know me better and and I could also get to know you and understand where you're coming from and so yeah he would he you know he talked to one person after another and you know he kept going I think he's still he probably is still doing that and so uh every time um a KKK member leaves that order uh it's become a tradition that they give him the the you know the hood and robe and and stuff like that so he's collected like hundreds of these and yeah and because you know people that he helped convert uh would just give it to them and uh i mean give it to him and so i don't know if he's actually done it yet but his intention was to um, open a museum to display all these robes and sort of, you know, as a, as a educational, uh, platform. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but so that was my point that I, you know, that, uh, just to say like, oh, these neo-Nazis, these racists, you know, they're horrible people. Yeah. But they're still people. And I think, I think, you know, uh, that talking to them, you know, and, and trying to understand them is a worthwhile effort, um, because we want them to not be that anymore, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So if you, if you just shun them or block them out or, you know, or, or just discard them, then they'll never change, you know? Yeah. Uh, but anyway... Sorry, another rabbit hole. Because we kept going into, we kept talking about neo Nazis and the tattoos and stuff and the occult. But yes, that's your favorite topic. Uh, yeah. Anyway. It's, it's just uh, teach. Yeah. No, it would be it would be great for you and I to have uh, you know additional conversations about the different topics that you actually teach. I think it would be fascinating uh, to kind of like delve into that. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing with teaching Bible classes is I love the Bible, but teaching it sometimes is uh -huh. painful. Because so? like now I'm teaching like Ginger in the Bible fully online and um, 
you have some students who still don't understand what we're doing and it's eight weeks in and like they're just like well god said and and like they're they're just like not understanding that we're not taking a fundamentalist approach to the bible here mm-hmm. um so if if the only uh, and, and i was very clear on the syllabus that you know this is how we're approaching the Bible. If you're not comfortable with it, I really think you should take another class. I guess some of them didn't read it. So I have some who are like really just blindly fundamentalist and like missing huge amounts. And then others who are blindly feminist and refuse to accept what the Bible actually says. Mm. (laughs) Um, And they're just like, I'm not dealing with that because it's wrong. And I'm like, this is a class in gender and the Bible. You need to engage with the Bible. You can't just say, I reject this because it, it, it offends me as a feminist. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. So it's just been frustrating. And in modern yeah. cultural contemporary paganism, you don't have those frustrations. You know? Huh. Why is that? Is it because, why? Because it's different. It's different from the Bible. Even when I have students who are practitioners of these things, they're not coming in with a dogmatic approach. The problem with gender in the Bible is getting dogmatic approaches on both sides. Mm. And and they're just not being willing to accept that in order to engage with this material, you need to get out of your comfort zone a little. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's important, actually. Uh, to get out of your comfort zone and challenge the beliefs that you may have uh, that, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's just... We could we could talk about that next time. <laughs> yeah, and, and if they're not going to be able to go there, then there's no, the class shouldn't be for Yeah. And it's just nice to teach a class where, like, that's not even on the table. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, you know, uh, if somebody's a practicing Wiccan, yeah, they may not be thrilled with my Wiccan origin story, but they're like, okay, fine. You know, we know this is out there. I still am a resolute Wiccan and this is fine. You know, they don't just outright reject it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, there, so there are m- multiple versions of the origin of Wiccan stories. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's the Wiccan version and then there's what we do. <laughs> Which is more like the historian approach to the origins of Wicca. Oh. Which is on the figure of Gerald Gardner and his interest in the occult. So that's not necess- fabricating a bunch of stuff. So that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, the historical approach is you're just approach. That's just a different approach as to. Yeah, but the origin stories don't work hand in hand. They can't both be right. You can't have had these underground witches for thousands of years practicing their Neolithic witch cult at the same time that you have somebody deciding in 19, what, 50? Hey, I have an idea. <laughs> and then finding some anthropologist friends to like make up a bunch of stuff along with him and create something out of nothing and say it goes all the way back. Okay, I didn't realize that they were that different. They're that different. <laughs> yeah. One belief is this Neolithic witch cult actually survived for thousands of years, and the others is that it's completely fabricated. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So, so you you teach the it's completely fabricated. We teach both. Oh, you teach both. But you need to. But it's pretty clear which side. 
is is emphasized in the class okay yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do you emphasize the the it's all made up approach because it's most likely true it's most likely true because that's what you believe that, yeah. that neolithic witch cult thing has been and one of the things i have them read is basically a takedown on that by a wonderful feminist scholar so it's not just an anti-woman thing <laughs> but she's just like yeah man this is this is what we have this doesn't this is no. well you know <laughs> you know a feminist would say uh, just because a woman said it does not make it feminist or no, but not, she's a well-known feminist scholar, not anti-feminist. No, I know. I'm just. Yeah. I'm just. Uh, I mean, I know not a woman, but I mean, as a feminist, like she is a like. Yeah. She's a feminist. She yeah. is very openly feminist. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not just a woman a feminist, and she's just like, yeah, this is nice, but, but here's why it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, why is Wiccan uh, a a woman thing? Are, are there men Wiccans? Yes. Okay. And in fact, it was started by a man, and it was originally very co-ed. And then what you started having were movements where women um, basically, and this was kind of like with second wave feminism, that they were like, enough with the men. And that's when you started getting stuff like Diana Wicca that was only women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because men were kind of dominating things, like big shock there. And they just wanted to have a space for women. So it made sense to have Wiccan movements that were female only. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's what men do. They dominate. Exactly. <laughs> it's in, it's yeah. in their genes. But, and especially you know, when you have a man like, oh, and we're going to have sex as part of the rituals. <laughs> you know, you, you could see women being like, mm. <laughs> Let's do our own version. <laughs> yeah, where we dominate over men. <laughs> where men aren't even there. Yeah, and in fact, there was this huge, huge scene because trans women. Right. What do you do with trans women? And and that's where some of the all women covens like got into weird issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, well, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's, that's a whole other bag. Yeah, yeah, that's getting way down a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, all right. So we're, we're actually coming to, uh, three hours. Yeah. Um, so let's, um, I think, well, it's a, it's a fascinating journey that you've had, I think. Um, and there, these are some interesting topics that you teach. Um, yeah, and I would love to, you know, talk to you more about, like, kind of get into some of those topics. It'd be interesting. It'll be, I, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting. Like, I'm always happy to. I mean, I teach this stuff because I love it. So. Yeah, you're coming from... Uh, more of a scholarly approach and me, you know, I could be that, uh, oh, I, I don't know if I'm a fundamentalist. <laughs> no, the fundy answers are so off base. I know. I, I don't think you would be doing those answers. 
I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a fundy, but <laughs> but I would be coming from a religious perspective. <laughs> a religious perspective is fine. Many of yeah. my students are religious. Yeah. Religious yeah. perspective is not an issue. What is an issue is refusing to go with the basic premise of the class, which is just that the Bible is a collection of texts inspired by God, but written by people. Yeah. And if you're going in insisting that God dictated the entire Bible, which some of these students still are, um, you're not. Oh, That's oh I see. I see. I mean, fun, I mean, real fundamentalist, hardcore fundamentalist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not that. Certainly. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Anyway. So yeah, it would be interesting to have, uh, yeah. Uh, more talks about this. Yeah, cool. All right, cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was fun. Actually, I, I got, know, I got to know you a lot better now. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah. So thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, please follow beer cake with jj co on facebook instagram and twitter and uh you could find the podcast on probably most streaming platforms now i finally got to you know stream on apple google pocket cast castnet and so forth and of course it's on anchor.fm and spotify and uh if you'd like to make a donation hey anchor.fm there's a little you know support button click on that otherwise you could uh like follow and uh subscribe to the different streams and uh and, and sub yeah subscribe to the different streams that'd be great um i'm actually trying to get as my first hurdle trying to get 100 subscribers on youtube so i could get a unique url because right now it's just a gobbledygook that you know youtube uh assigns me um but if i get 100 subscribers and i could actually put youtube.com slash beer cake podcast and that'll be kind of cool so thanks everyone and tune in next time <laughs>